you're here at 15 Perry Street, my name is Robert Gowan. I'm the host of the Mentors for Military podcast, and I'm joined by my sidekick this weekend is going to be Kyle Neal. How are you guys? <laughs> so um, we have a special guest here, but what I do want to do is uh, point out that people can help support the podcast by going out to our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-O, if you want to help support the podcast in addition to that, uh, you can follow us on all the social media. Make sure you give us a good five-star rating, uh, notes, and everything on there about how great we are would be terrific. That way people can find us whenever they're out there looking at it. So, again, it's Mentors, the number four, M-I-L. So we're joined in the studio by Alan Mack. Now, Alan Mack is a former 160th uh, SOAR pilot, and we're going to get into that story. But from the very beginning, where is it that you – originated from here in the states well let's see uh portsmouth new hampshire so you're still in the, so you went back home then well to the northeast yeah yeah I'm, I'm in new york now okay um so what at what point was it that you decided that the military was what you wanted to do uh when i was really little really yeah. okay Par yeah. parents in the military or something uh, or? my dad was a draftee you know two years yeah. but um the vietnam war was going on yeah and every night at Five o'clock on the news, you saw, you know, Hueys flying in and planes dropping bombs. I was like, that's what I'm doing. And everybody said, you know, you don't want to do that. You know, it's a dead end job. <laughs> so I was supposed to go to college and um, decided I wasn't ready. Yeah. You know, I knew I would just party and, uh, and, and not study. And uh, so I joined the Army. You know, and of course, I go into the recruiter and I say, hey, I'd like to fly helicopters. You're like, all right, hey, that's great, kid. But, you know, it's not that easy. Right? <laughs> so how about you join in Army Aviation and you do that a couple of years, you get it under your belt, and then uh, put in for it. It's a lot easier. And you know, that's a typical recruiter spiel, but it was true. Yeah. You know, and I did nine years as a uh, helicopter mechanic and uh, worked on Cobras, OH-58s, and Hueys. Nice. So this is what year? So 1981. Okay. So, wow, you're back like old school uh, to me because I came in in 1980. Yeah. What was your first duty station then? Uh, first duty station was Korea. Okay. Oh, God. Camp Stanley. Who did you upset? Wow. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> My whole class went to uh, Korea. Oh, oh, it was one wow. of those types of deals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they had a name for that back then. I forget what it was, where they would take the whole thing. You weren't one of those where the drill sergeant and everything, right? No. Like on stripes? No, they just sent all the AIT students to Korea. Okay. Oh, wow. You know, all, we were all scattered around the country. Where'd you go after Korea? Uh, Fort Bliss, Texas. Ah, man. Wow, you really made some money, man. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm trying no, to figure no offense to Fort Bliss. <laughs> no, you're right. And, uh, you know, so I met my uh, my first wife there, um, or really my late wife. Yeah. And um, we went to Germany after that. We did four years in uh, Mannheim. Mannheim. Yeah. Uh, ever run any, when were you there in uh, in Germany? 85 okay. to 89. After I uh, had left, did you ever run any border trace or anything at that time frame? No. Yeah, I was an aircraft mechanic, so I just... Yeah, oh, you there. were always on the ground. You never got crew chief and yep. okay, that type of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> so when was it you started hearing about the 160th, or, or when did you start wanting to go into flight school? I guess maybe it was what led you to that. So you didn't do 160th any soft at any point prior to going to flight school? No. Oh, no. Wow. As a matter of fact, when I was leaving Germany... 
you know, I decided I was going to probably ETS, you know, I was going to get out of the army. And, um, I decided I would put in for flight school and if I got picked up, I'd stay. And if not, I'd get out. And in the meantime, I uh, put in for the 160th as an enlisted guy. And I was going to go be an aircraft mechanic for them. And I'd written a, a letter to the sergeant major and said, you know, whatever I had to do back then. And, uh, Got picked up for flight school. Nice. There in uh, 1989. Uh, so you went to Mother Rucker. Yeah. Um, while there, what was it that near the end of that that they were kind of leaning you towards flying, or did you get your choice? No, I uh, did not get my choice, although I was happy with it. Yeah. So back in 89-90, you know, there was, I was in a class of like 75 guys, and I don't know, probably 30 of us, maybe 50 were um, Hueys. And then you had eight Blackhawks, nine Cobras, and you know, whatever's left for 58s or something like that. And um, I liked that because I wanted to do assault. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, or actually fortunately for me, um, the Army was getting short uh, Chinook pilots, right, because they were all very senior. You know, to fly Chinooks back then... You had to be, a, you know, a senior W three or W four. W fives didn't exist, and uh, typically it was for going to Vietnam. Then you get that as a prize, and you go back flying Chinooks instead of Hueys. So <laughs> you, the, you made it. Here you go. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is, they uh, they all retired about the same time, right? So they next thing they could do is take W ones, which were unheard of at the time. So they uh, the only thing they could do, the only metric they had. To whether you were any good or not was uh, your grade point average. Oh, really? So, yeah. That's what it was based off of. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be uh, number one, and uh, my stick buddy was number two, and we got picked up for for Chinooks, and I was pissed. You know? <laughs> I mean, this is something I should, you know, no one yeah. mentored yeah. me, right? Yeah. I said, hey, yeah. this is a this is a good thing for you, right? And I'm like, I want to do assaults. Yeah. I don't want to haul cargo from airport to airport. Right? It's going to be boring. And, um, you know, I went and flew it, you know, got qualified in it. I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, it's it's nice. And I went to Savannah, Georgia. It was my first assignment as a pilot. And uh, I got there and Saddam invaded Kuwait, like, that week that I was checking in. That's, it got <laughs> real quick. Yeah. 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 And we did have, so I was in Savannah, Georgia at Hunter Army Airfield. And right next door to us in the hangar was a third of the 160th. And a lot of the pilots there knew our pilots because they'd all been to Korea, you know, at some point or other. Korea was like the great mixing ground for Chinook pilots. You know, you all, there's only one place to go. It was uh, Camp Humphreys. And you were either an innkeeper or a black cat. And I was a black cat. What was the difference? For those, because I'm not familiar with oh, this term. Well, yeah, the uh, well, it was just the names of the unit, but uh, oh, yeah, yeah. black hat because of the patch, right? Yeah. yeah. I, so the difference is the black hats were better. <laughs> <laughs> for those wondering, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, my innkeeper buddies, you know, they they had uh, so we had a black cat with his back hunched up, and Walt Disney actually did the uh, design for it, and then the innkeepers had uh, an arrow pointed up on the aft pylon of the aircraft, and that was so if it crashed, you knew which side to keep up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. So um, Disney did the design for that? Yeah. How, how did that get coordinated? Do you know the story behind that? No. I think he did them for a lot of military units, you know, in Vietnam. Had no idea. 
Did you know that? I had no idea. That's something I'm to look into. That's, yeah. yeah. That's cool. I don't know that I've ever heard that story. Um, I always just kind of thought that was probably some, I don't know, I don't know if they even termed a graphic artist back in the day, but some person that was assigned within the military to come up with a design and then it was put forward or you saw some um, that looked like it came from, you know, it, it had symbolism of some ways where they probably were an individual that played Dungeons and Dragons, it seemed like, or something, you know, where you uh, got well, different. That, that is what happened later on. Like the current, yeah. the current design uh, is a much cooler looking, you know, like a panther, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And, you know, Disney's was a cat, you know, like from... It wasn't ferocious enough, I guess. No, but <laughs> w when they changed it, yeah, you know, the older guys, because what would happen is you'd you'd go back to the states to you know Fort Campbell, Fort Hood, or Savannah. Those were the big places you can brag, the big places to go in Chinooks. And then you'd do that for three or four years, and then you'd have to go to Korea for a year and come back. And uh, the older guys would come back and they, what the hell are you guys doing, changing the logo? Walt Disney did that, you know, and they had big fights. <laughs> yeah. But they ended up changing it. <laughs> yeah. After, so you had 3rd th uh, and 160th there in the hangar with you, and you guys ran some of the same circles. Um, you had already thought about going 160th as a, as a mechanic and everything. So mm -hmm. this was your great opportunity to, to learn more, and did you get a chance to really network to decide if that's what you wanted to do before you, <laughs> you put in the packet, or how did that end up going? No, not at that point. So at, at that stage of the game, I'm just a – a W O one, right? I'm a little Woj, and uh, you know, Woj, empty the trash. Woj, get me a Coke. <laughs> and, but, but the thing was, in order to go overseas with everybody, to not end up as a liaison like an L and O, I had to be what they call readiness progression level one, R L one. So they put all their effort into training me just to be a basic co-pilot. You know, because when you get to your unit, you know. You, you got to get checked out and they make sure, especially when you're W1, it's like, all right, what does this guy actually know? Yeah. And they got to erase some of the Rucker stuff. And we ended up flying our aircraft up to Wilmington, North Carolina to be put on a ship, right? And they, uh, a, a ship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 16 Chinooks and a Huey. We flew up there and they tore them down, put them on a ship and sent them over to Saudi Arabia. And uh, in the meantime, they still had to train me. So they used, they had a deal with the 160th, and they let us use one of their Chinooks to train me out. So that was kind of neat. It was it was a very bare bones. It's what they call a warbird. It just had, you know, like extra radios or something. There was yeah. nothing special about it other than that. Oh. But uh, so I went out, got trained up, and then we flew over to uh, Dharan, and we did what was called Desert Express or Desert Shield, right? So we would, you know, stuff would come in on a C-130. We'd fly over, pick it up. And it was all like emergency stuff, you know, like yeah. tank transmissions and treads and whatever yeah. they needed. And we would just fly those up and back. And the cool thing for me was nobody liked to fly night vision goggles, right? The old guys hated it. Yeah. Right? Well, back then they sucked. Well, they yeah. did. And, yeah. And, so you you're, know, you're rocking like the PBS 7 Bravos. Yeah. These were fives. Okay. So two and then one and you had the skull crusher on. Well, we, these were, um, they were a full face goggle yeah. that somebody had took like a Dremel tool and cut the bottom off it, and then you flip it upside down, and the lip would fit up inside your visor uh, for the helmet. And then you had surgical tubing and weight bags, and it was a, the guy that did it, the story goes, he almost got an Article 15 for ruining a $15,000 set of goggles. But it became the Army's way, right? <laughs> yeah, that's but, crazy. But everybody hated the damn things. I mean, the, 
visual acuity was like, I don't know. Uh, On a scale of one to ten, like about a zero. Yeah. It was terrible. Like one and a yeah. half. Yeah, like they were bad. Yeah. yeah. Especially on a dark night, yeah. you know. But so here I am, the W1, and they got to do this uh, flying at night, and all of the W4s are like, take the Woj, you know. He'll he'll go, you know. He doesn't know any better. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. And so I built all kinds of night vision goggle time and experience in the desert that these other guys wouldn't do, you know. And uh, as a matter of fact, we lost our commander and our standardization instructor pilot. Uh, the the war had ended, like the ceasefire happened. We flew up north to pick up a bunch of uh, prisoners of war, Iraqis. And we flew them back into Saudi Arabia to some some prison. I can't remember where it was. And then it was along the Tapline Road, which is this east-west running road on the northern border between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And so it's nighttime, and there's five aircraft, and um, only two of us put on goggles, one other crew had goggles and didn't put them on. That was our commander. And uh, they just felt like they could just, it was easier to go unaided down to, you know, our camp. And they hit an unlit tower that the rest of us avoided because we could see, we, could, we couldn't see it. That was the problem. I was like, hey, there's supposed to be a tower over here and I can't see it. Let's just offset. And so we flew by it and they didn't offset. And they just ran smack dab into it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So that just proved how... Night flying was so much more dangerous, you know, yeah. for these older guys. So when we got back from uh, from Desert Storm, all the army had realized night fighting was the the thing, right? So every exercise we went on, whether it was NTC, JRTC, San Diego, all these things, you had to have goggle crews. But of the sixteen ship company, there was only like four goggle crews, and I was one of them. So I was gone all the time, you know. So with the depth perception was absolutely horrendous in that mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, there's and none. It, yeah, and and you probably did some, you know, um, Mojave Desert time uh, time out there and stuff in Fort Irwin, um, but it, it was at this time frame was one of the um, first time periods I think where we're really using the night vision goggles in this way. I would just I would assume a lot more, and then having to put up with the challenges of the the sand, the dust, and everything with your engine components. You know? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the sand just eats it up. And, you know, the goggles were so bad back then that you'd come back at the end of the night at NTC, right? And you'd come in and you'd kind of slam into the ground, you know, almost a little crash. And once you stopped, you'd stomp on the, you know, you'd stomp on the brakes and stop. And, ooh, we made it. You know, we still have our landing gear. And you'd shut the aircraft down. And the next day you come out to, to do the pre-flight inspection and you'd see like a big boulder or a ditch, you know, inches from your landing gear. It's like, oh my God, I didn't see mm. that. You know, we were this close to having a, you know, a damaged aircraft. You know, I was, uh, when I went to Fort Irwin, um, prior to like Desert Storm and everything, when I went to Fort Irwin, it was, um, in, I was in armor and it was uh, M60s and stuff that we, it was not, not that big of a deal. Fast forward and you go in, in your, you know, on an M1, which with a turbine engine, and it's a very similar type of situation, right. you know. Um, they just were not designed at that time period. They hadn't really had that type of experience and exposure. You know, you get the occasional going to the Fort Irwin, maybe pulling out an M1 or something. Yeah. But not to the level I don't think that it was back then with the debris, the sand, and the damage that it was taking. It was taking a toll 
serious toll on a lot of vehicles. Oh, yeah. but, but it really set the stage and allowed us to prepare for those future, future battles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, uh, the one thing that the Army in general, Army Aviation, found out is not all deserts are equal. Right. Good so point. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the NTC desert, right, Fort Irwin, it's sort of a gravelly, rocky with some, um, some brush. And there's, you know, we talked about the goggles not having depth perception. Yep. So you use what they call monocular cues, which are things like the known size of an object. You say, oh, that's a bush over there. That's probably three feet. I know how high I am, you know, that kind of stuff. But then you go to Saudi Arabia and the dunes are smooth. Right? And they have a second lip. So they come up and they go in a couple of feet and then they come up again. Right, And you can see the bottom lip, but you can't see the top one because it's sort of in the shade. And the Army ripped off, I don't know how many landing gear in that first, during Desert Shield, right, to the point where what we had to do was they set a, a hard deck of 150 feet above the ground, you know, on your radar altimeter. And you had to have a guy in the jump seat, which is a little seat behind the two pilots. And he would just watch the altimeter. And if you got low, he was the voice warning system. He'd say, you're too low, pull up. Wow. Yeah. I mean, nowadays that's all automated, but. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm listening to this and I, I'm, I can totally visualize it because, um, you know, when you, and you're flying through there and stuff, it, it's a wonder though, that some of these landing gears that were ripped off didn't cause a nosedive or did it? Um, it no. you, you didn't lose any aircraft. No, they, just, that. they just shear off. Shear. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So it's like a safety mechanism or something or. It was like, oh, okay, it's, yeah, it's we're too low. Unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How was that uh, coming back in and landing the bird then without the landing gear? Uh, well, with the, they didn't, no Chinooks had that. It was all uh, Hueys and Blackhawks. Yeah. So I think the Blackhawk was like, you know, like a tailwheel, and the, and the Hueys were a set of skids. Okay. And an OH-58 and a Cobra, I Wait, think. Wait, you, you, Hueys were losing skids? Yeah. Because when you said landing gear, I was thinking more probably, you know. Yeah, skids. The, the wheel. Sure, right off. <laughs> Again, I'm, 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 I would think that you'd hit a, you'd hit something. The skid would shear, but I would think that that would cause yeah, other just, effects. Well, I think if you were going slower, you know, you, you probably could. But going fast like that's just like four bolts, you know, on either side of the skids. You know, it's just a like a, a U channel. Yeah, and like skids just sit in there. So they're just kind of hanging there, and the bolts just keep them from falling off. Why were you guys flying at, like, nap of the earth and so low? Because that's what we thought we had to do. Ah, uh, right. okay. So, <laughs> <and> surface-to-air <laughs> stuff was, was definitely, like, inflated at that point. Yeah, like, they yeah. have these, these capabilities, so we got to do this. Right, so yeah. that's the thing, right? That's what happened in um, Desert One, right, with the uh, Iranian hostage crisis. The, the um, 53s flew, at like, 400 feet in this sandstorm. And the um, C-130s flew at 4,000 feet, right, the same, same path, because they knew there was no radar out there. And the helicopter pilots said, we've got to stay low. That's what we do. And they flew in this sandstorm without being able to see. But, you know, the Army was the same way. And the other thing is with the night vision goggles, if you get up higher, there is no texture to pick up. So yeah. you want to fly as low as you can yeah. to see the texture of the ground because that helps you with uh, your height you know, in speed. Yeah, it'll help with depth perception at, at that. You can start seeing contours and yep. stuff a little bit better. Yeah. yeah, and that was the problem with Saudi is that it was so smooth, right? But then as you progress north into Iraq, you know, it was uh, a little more like NTC, but not as craggy. You know, it's kind of flat. 
but you did have some scrub and some rocks and things like that. So it was a little easier to fly there. I never, I just, I guess I never really realized that looking at the night vision goggles and trying to keep that depth perception and stuff and how critical of what you're describing is, you know, um, but then again, I do remember these terrible night vision goggles, and I could see the need for it uh, for sure. Because, I mean, even in the vehicles, the night vision goggles sucked at that time frame. Yeah. They were the same quality. Really? It was, it was the same same set, the fives, right? Yeah. The fives. Because I drove a, a Jeep and then a, a Cuck V, you know, yeah. a blazer, you know, with the full face on it. No one gave me a class. It was just... Oh, no one ever did Mac. that, right? Did you? Mac, <laughs> yeah. take the platoon leader up to check on the FARP. All right, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and he'd be, are you sure you can see the road? I'm like, oh, yes, sir. You know. <laughs> I got the blackout drive on. Uh, blackout drive, yeah. I was going to ask you, did you have a blackout drive on? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so um, how many hours did you end up flying while over there then? Um, in Desert Shield and Storm, probably six or 700, which is is a lot for over there because a lot of guys just sat around during Desert Shield because they didn't want to fly. Yeah. And the idea was that Desert Storm, Desert Shield was a defensive operation, so you don't have to do anything, right? Yeah. And, of course, you just change the name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yeah, so did you get any other type of experience other than the night vision and the, the 600 hours? I mean... Mm, not really. Okay. I mean, it was, you know, it was a co-pilot, and... We, and we went up, you know, so we were way out west, like the big left hook that they talk about, yeah. you know, Schwarzkopf's left hook, the fake. Uh, so we go up and establish um, FOB Cobra, which is a big series of uh, um, refueling and arming points, right? So we're, you know, flights of five Chinooks, and there's got to be 100 of us, maybe more. I think it might have been 150 Chinooks. Just going up there, dropping stuff off, and then the Cobras and Apaches would come in, pick up the armament, go out, and do their thing, and the artillery guys would come get their stuff and their gas. And they did that in the daylight because it would have been catastrophic at night, and I can guarantee that, you know, and especially in hindsight now. It's like, yeah, we weren't ready for that at night. What, what was your split then between daylight and nighttime of those 600 hours? Uh, for me, I probably had about 150 hours a night, you know, because they tried not to fly at night if they could help it. Uh-huh. It's so different now. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's a night stalker. <clears throat> so I, I was uh, at Fort Rucker one time with some friends of mine uh, that were with DES, the Director of Evaluation and Standards. And we were at lunch, and the guy says, uh, so, Al, how many, uh, how many goggle hours you got? I said, uh, about 4,000. And he's like, no, 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 not total time, goggle time. I'm like, no, it is my goggle time. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm closer to 7,000 hours uh, without. Oh, my God. And they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, Night Stalker. Yeah, you know, right. Like, it's kind of, kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because so we flew at night, I mean, all the time, you know, barely in the daytime. Usually in the 160, the daytime flights were more like a rehearsal for like a, yeah. Yeah. You, you ratchet up the complexity. So you always start out in the daylight, you try it, you wait for the sun to go down, you go back and do it again, and huh. that's what we did. So after Desert Storm, go so, back to Stewart? Or? Yeah, so I was back at Stewart, and that's what I was doing, all those exercises like JRTC, San Diego, mm-hmm. all that stuff, yeah. as a goggle crew member. And then uh, came the dreaded, you're going to Korea. <laughs> 
you know, as a pilot. Once you once you get on that rotation, it seems like your name stays there. Yeah. 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 Well, like I said, everybody had to do it, and it, it was kind of one of those. Actually, it was a great assignment. I mean, I had a wife and two kids, so that part sucked. But the the mixing of you know guys from Fort Campbell, guys from Fort Hood, guys from Fort Bragg and Savannah, you know, it's like, well, we don't do it that way at Bragg. You no, know, you don't. <laughs> you know, but that's how we're doing it here. It's always Bragg. It's always Bragg. Yeah, you don't do it like that at Bragg. Uh, there's, like, I get it. But <laughs> oh, there's more stories. You know, I'll we'll probably hit later on. You know, of, you know, overseas. You know, in Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, when you know the 101st would have the the far up the Fort Army refueling point, and then they leave, and the 82nd would take it over, and they would change the direction or how it's done. They'd reinvent the wheel. Yeah, and you get yelled at every time you go in there. It's like, wait, well, you're supposed to be parked this way. And it's like, well, well I was here last night. Yeah. Was, I was like, what'd you do? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I go to Korea, and um, that was a year on a company assignment. And that's where I sort of started transitioning um, as a pilot in that. I wanted to be an instructor pilot, an IP, and I was still pretty junior. I was a CW2, and they let me be a no-fly line unit trainer, so a UT, right? So I would teach guys how to fly along the border. I had to have the, the whole length of the country, east to west, uh, memorized. And I would have to, you know, the instructor would sit on a, at the table with my map. Everybody had a, a book map right, that you had to make. And I'd say, okay, on this page, you're going to... You're going to turn left around the little knoll up the creek bed, you know, and you yeah, good, you know, and then you go do it. And, you know, you fly while the other guy is following on the map and you just kind of tell him what is going on. And that was, it was a great experience because we had this, um, a CW5 came over, a guy named Jake Stevens. He's a legend in the community. And I was giving him his, uh, his buffer zone qualification. So we're going up into, beyond that no fly line, up into, you know, uh, Camp Liberty Bell, you know, where they have the, the DMZ is on the, the painted on the, on the ground, that kind of stuff. And as I was going up there, I was saying something along the lines of, okay, we'll turn left here. We're going to fly as low as possible, commensurate with our speed. You know, we get 200 meters left and right, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, who taught you how to do that? You know, to talk like that. It's called MOI. And I said, I just did it. I read the regulation and spit it back out. And he says, you need to be an instructor pilot. So he pulled some strings and uh, with DA and uh, Department of the Army, and he got me assigned to Fort Rucker. You know, I was supposed to go back to Hunter, but if I wanted to be an IP, I had to go back and stay at, at Rucker. And so I did that. And uh, at that time, my wife had um, some depression problems, and she had attempted suicide while I was over there. Mm. So I thought, you know, maybe the Rucker thing would be a good deal. Right. So no deployments, no training exercises. So we did that and uh, she loved it and I hated it. <laughs> you know? I was going to ask you because it's such a different lifestyle, not to mention that, you know, you're dealing with trainee, you know, pilots and stuff. And um, I would imagine the aircraft is probably just not that desirable. It's not what you're used to in the probably the standard army um it, it's more designed for training purposes so yeah. well, i was bored silly you know i had um, my first two set of students were great yeah I mean, they were just amazing and a lot of fun and then the um, they ruined it for everything well then what okay. happened is the national guard uh, there in alabama changed over from ch-54 sky cranes to chinooks and they didn't want to the pilots right so they came in to get their transition from 
young CW2 Alan Mack, and they're all W4s and, you know, had been to Vietnam, and they loved the 54, and they hated the Chinook, and they just took it out of me. You know, <laughs> like, it's my fault that they're there, right? <laughs> and, you know, I'd be like, all right, what's the emergency procedure for this? And they would just give me some wise-ass answer. I'd like, come on, guys, you know? And I hated it. And then they gave me foreign students, which were good, Singapore, Australia, and some Dutch. And they were good, but they were better than me. Like, these guys to come, you know, they had, like, aerodynamics degrees and all this other stuff. So I couldn't really teach them anything. And so it wasn't any fun. And then um, a buddy of mine who went through the instructor pilot course with me had come back for another course and he threw a, um, an application on my desk. He's like, yeah, we need you up there, Fort Campbell. Come on, let's go. And I'm like, I don't know. I, better guys than me have not made it. Right. But the thing is, you don't know why yeah. they didn't make it. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, they just, Oh, those guys were jerks. You know, they, didn't take me. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe his finances are no good or, you mm-hmm. know, stuff you might not know. But I, I filled it out by hand, right? Back then the computers still weren't a big deal. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I just started filling it out, you know, a little at a time. And when it was full, I said, ah, I put it in. And like two weeks later, I get a call from the 160th recruiter. He's like, hey, uh, Mr. Mack, how'd you like to assess? You know, come up, try out. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> So I went up and I made it. That's well, awesome. Well, that's that's the short version. Yeah. It has to be the short version because <laughs> yeah, yeah. so um, I mean they don't they they are very heavy in how they scrutinize the applications yeah. to get to that point. Um, yeah, I can't remember the percentages, but it's like of the submitted applications, like only seventy five percent of them make the first cut. You know, just along the desks, and then you get down to you know like you know fifty or forty percent actually come up to assess and of those only 25%, you know, do it now. Obviously those numbers have changed. Yeah. Ago, but I, mean, I was there close to 17 years. So this was 94 per time period, maybe. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm just trying to remember back at that time frame. Um, I was still at Benning at that time frame. So, and in 94, 160th had been around for what only about six, seven years or something. Uh, like 1980. That? 1980. I didn't think that they started that early. Okay. Yeah, because you had the 1979 Eagle Claw. Right. Okay. That, yes. Right. And then the 160th was formed to join with uh, Delta, right? Because Delta existed and then they put this ad hoc task force together, which was the problem. I mean, that's a whole. Yes, uh, I remember that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But so the 160th was formed for Operation Honey Badger, which was the second attempt, but they released them before it ever happened. And once the uh, Iranians let the hostages go, I think it was, um, may have been General Meyer, was the chief of staff of the Army. I, I might be wrong on that, but whoever that was said, we're not disbanding this. You're going to maintain this capability. And that's when the 160th was formed. Okay. I thought there was a larger gap in between that time frame. So that's that's very interesting. So, okay, my bad. Uh, it's been around for a period of time. Uh, by this time frame, they probably refined their selection a little bit better. Uh, but, I mean, today, you know, the scrutiny and, and how they, ref, you know, they get people in and stuff is is really tight as well because everybody's now heard about it yeah. back then you kind of heard yeah. about it you got a chance to run circles you're in the same hangar right. you know but um now more people hear about it obviously the the volume of applications is probably much larger 
Um, so how many people ended up going through selection at the same time frame? And did you go in with the flight crews and, and everybody? Were you all in the same, or how did that go? Yeah, well, when it comes to assessment, you just go up individually. And, you know, you start you out with a, a regular Army PT test. And, you know, the funny story with that is they just they give you very bare bones information. PT test, 6 a.m. Like, uh, what do I wear? Like Army PT yet? This is special ops, you know, do you, do you right. wear something different? And so I wore civilian, you know, running shorts and a shirt. And I was like, other guys saw me like, you're going to show up like that? I'm like, yeah, screw those guys if they yeah. don't want me, right? Yeah. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah. Inside, I'm thinking, oh, I better bring the other one. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I left it in the car and uh, I got up. They didn't say anything to me. And, uh, you know, it's funny is years later, I talked to one of the recruiters like, hey, you know, when it comes to this, is is that a big deal? Like, yeah, actually it is. And, uh, you know, a guy that shows up like that, you know, he's he's already got the mindset. Yeah. <laughs> At least when it comes to that. Yeah. And then they don't count any of the iterations, push-ups, sit-ups, none of that stuff. You do pull-ups, which is not normal for the Army. And um, then they run you down to the Cav Country pool. And you jump in with your all your flight gear on. You know, they provide it. And you got to swim, you know, the length of the pool, different strokes. And you swim back. And then you got to get out and jump in, you know, deep water entry and then swim a length that you don't know, right? And they don't tell you, you know, so you're like swimming, swimming, swimming. And you come up, I can't go any further. I got out and the guy says, hey, sir, did you get to go twice? And I'm like, twice? I don't even know if I made it the first time. <laughs> so I get over there and I jump in and I do it and I swim thinking I'm going to just black out this time. I'm not coming up. And finally... I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm stroking, and, and somebody taps on my helmet. It's like, oh, I made it. <laughs> you know? And wow. I find out, same thing with that, is they were looking for not so much that you did it, because they figured they'll teach you to swim yeah. if you can't swim, right? But could you jump back in the water, you know? Or could you do, you do it again after right? you're smoked, or you're gonna, you know you're going to black out? Yeah, yeah. And, and they knew that I, w I was spent, you know, and I did it anyway. And they're like, yep, that's what we want. We don't want you to quit. Night stalkers don't quit. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And, and, you know, that's actually some of the things that you hear a lot through select, um, selection. People contact us all the time and say, you know, hey, can you guys talk a little bit more about it? Well, that's the whole purpose is that you're supposed to go there a little blind and not right. know yeah. what's expected. Yeah, and, you know, that's the problem with SEER school, right, is yeah. that uh, the, 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 they call it SEER level C, high risk of evasion, capture, whatever, uh, you know, that's at Fort Bragg, right? And they do it at Rucker now, too. But... You know, everybody kind of has the intel on that. Oh, they're going to make you do this and do this. And it's to your detriment to hear that because they know you know that and they just don't do it that way. You know, they always change it up enough that you think, and then you get deflated. Oh, that's not what I thought. They really are going to keep us here for seven more days, you know. <laughs> yeah, then your mind yeah. probably starts playing yeah. tricks on you. Right. And then I went to some another serious school like, that is a little more secretive and they don't tell you anything about it other than wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that's a giveaway automatically that's, right that's there. That's pretty ominous right there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you, so you finish up the, the assessment. You do like a, a couple of written psychology tests, a general aviation knowledge test, you know, threat assessments and things like that. And then you talk with a psychiatrist, right? And they got a. So I had, had the, the wife with the suicide attempt and. I thought that was going to derail me. You know, it's like, oh, you're going to be gone all the time. You know, she was doing better, obviously. And um, they never brought it up in the board, right? And I'll tell you about that in a second. So then you get your, your navigation target, which is some grass field somewhere that's unlit. 
and you got to plan, you know, about a two-hour route, just map and compass, you know, and clock, and you got to hit plus or minus 30 seconds. And I tell you, flying that kind of route in um, Kentucky mm-hmm. and Tennessee, it's all flat. Mm-hmm. It, it does not look the same, and you can't, you can't handrail roads, you can't, nothing, you've you got to be, it's all clock and compass. And they can tell if you're not, and uh, nobody ever passes. You know, even if you're good enough to pass, you won't pass because yeah. they'll do something that puts you out of standards. You know, maybe they just fly out a trim for a, a little bit and screw up your time. Is you it know, your really just to see how you're going to react to yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, they want to know number one: can you navigate? But they're going to teach you how to navigate the way they want you to yeah. anyway. So it doesn't matter if you're any good or not. It it matters when you get lost. Do you freak out? Right? Because when you you can tell when a guy starts turning his map like a Bus driver, you're dragging a wheel. He's like uh, trying to orient the map to the ground. Yeah. That's like, ah, driving the bus, huh? Where are we? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, then they push you through the board. Right? Yeah. Which is job interview on steroids, right? So it's the you know, regiment commander, the battalion commander of the battalion that's gonna get you, the shrink, the recruiter, the S one, you know, the personnel guy. And they just grill you and try to get you to cry. And I, I have made people cry on the other end of the table. And I've, you know, the, but the whole time I was waiting for him to say something about my wife. And they never did. So when they would hit me with something that they thought was like really mean and this will get him, you know, I'm like, Ooh, they didn't ask him about the wife. And so I yeah. went through just, you know, they couldn't get to me, you know, because they didn't use that weapon. That, and I was just getting ready to say that that was the one thing that you had feared the most. And had they asked you, you probably had some kind of prepared statement in your head of what, how you were going to respond to that and everything else. So it's, it's funny the way you're describing that because everything else outside of that was a blessing for you. You were looking at this as, all right, as long as we keep flying under that radar, man, I'm good. But if they asked me this question, that, that, that would have been the opportunity. They didn't know that that was the kryptonite. They didn't know that that would have been the challenge for you. Yeah, and I think the, um, so when they accepted me, you know, the, uh, the shrink comes out afterwards. Yeah. Whether you get accepted or not, the shrink, shrink comes out. He says, hey, you know, good job, whatever. And he came up to me and he said, uh, listen, uh, your issue with your wife, we've seen it before. We can deal with it. Don't worry about it. So, nice. So I think he's the one that told them about yeah. it, but said just stay away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had, you know, I had enough people that knew me from past assignments or past exercises and such that, uh, you know, they wanted me. Yeah. And they needed me, actually. I mean, they needed, you know, a skilled, you know, Chinook pilot with enough MVG time to, you know, they could train their way. Yeah. Because Chinook guys... I mean, honestly, they got a pretty damn good life out there in the big army. And for the most part, all you can say is, why would you want to do the 160th thing? I mean, most guys won't do it. You know, we, we had a recruiting drive one time, and the battalion commander made us, because, you know, the 160th is not direct assigned. It's only volunteer, right? And, you, and a warrant officer can stay there as long as he wants to stay or is still productive. So, I, like I said, I was there 16 years and you know, nine months or something like that. You were, you, so you were at 14 at this point then, around 14, right? Yeah. I mean, I ended up doing 36. Oh, absolutely. okay. Yeah. So it's like two separate careers. Yeah. Bless you. 36. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 35 years, 11 months. But, yeah, <laughs> just 
Right. So 26 days, four guilty. hours. Sometimes I feel guilty saying 36. It's like, no, it's 35 years, 11 months. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, but at that time frame and everything, you know, you, you knew what to expect or you didn't know what to expect at this point? I mean, this is 95. There's nothing really going on. At right. That, so Mogadishu know. just happened. Say, that, okay. Right. okay that's, that's probably the biggest thing in that time period. Oh, because I left in 95, I think, for my next assignment leaving Benin. You're right. It was right around. Um, it just had happened. Right. Forgot all about so that. So guys were, you know, who had been there or obviously. Were you in Mogadishu? No. Okay. No, I was at... Uh, at Rucker. So I got there. I got to the 160th. You know, a couple months after they all got back. Yeah. Which mm. was, was funny because we're at a, a JRTC, the big one, with, yeah. where you bring the, the you know, DevGrew guys and the CAG and all that stuff. And they did, I wasn't trained up yet. Right? I'm just a basic mission qualified pilot. So they made me the assistant Ranger LNO. It was a guy named Ranger Doffit, RD, right? He's famous in the community, a nice guy. But and he knew what he was doing. He used to be a ranger, and he's a captain, and he's doing this thing right now. I'm his assistant. So when he's not, you know, he's out in the field with the guys. I'm, you know, passing information back and forth. And I was told by the pilots, like the the flight leads, we are not flying in the day. They're going to want to do it. And it really had more to do with crew endurance. Like the guys had been up late the night before. They wanted at least you know eight hours of rest or whatever before they go back out and do a complex mission in the dark. And the rangers were like, no, we want them. You know, and the battalion commander ended up being a general. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, Mr. Mack, I want them to fly at, you know, 1400. I was like, no, sir, they will not. And he looks up at me with these cold eyes. And then he looks at my boots and he looks at my uniform from the feet up to my hair. And he just looks at me, you know, <laughs> like, really? And I said, well, uh, sir, um, you know, I could tell right now I was in trouble. And I was like, I believe it's because of, you know, the, what happened in Mogadishu, <laughs> which was the wrong thing to say to this guy because his he had been there. And he's like, I happen to know that General Daly, you know, is okay with this. And I was like, All right, sir, obviously I stepped out of line. I'm brand new. I apologize. I will take your message back right now. And I went back to the, my battalion commander and I said, hey, sir, I, I, here's what I did. And he goes, I don't worry about it. He goes, we're not flying today. <laughs> So you were right, at least. Yeah, I was. But, but he didn't, you know, I mean, you know, the Rangers, especially Ranger leadership, you know, yeah. they're very, you know, they're very firm on what they want from oh, yeah. leadership and, yeah. and who's supporting them. And, you know, they deserve it. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, years later as a flight lead, you know, I used to, my, my sons both were in the military. One was in the 160th and the other one is still in the Navy, flies uh, F-18s. And I would tell them something along the lines of, you know, Anything less than a full bird better not mess with me, right? Because I'm just going to let them have it in both barrels. <laughs> and it was really blustery. I didn't really mean it. But, you know, I would go toe-to-toe with some very senior people if I was in the right. And the 160th is cool about that because the, the lunatics kind of run the asylum. Yes. Know, the warrant officers are given a goal by the commander, and then they plan it, they brief it, they execute it, at least the first-level contingencies. And if there's something more complex, you know, you have a – Air Mission Commander or the uh, Unit Commander with you, so they kind of let you do that. They empower you, you know, and it's a really good feeling. But uh, you know, my son used that on his first deployment to Syria, 
And as he told me about it, I was like, dude, I was kidding when I said that. He goes, well, I didn't know that. He could have told me. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it go? He ended up okay. Okay, you know, that's but, good. Uh, he was a little bit worried. Oh, that like, kind yeah. of... Dad, I was giving the captain a hard time. I'm like, an army captain? He's like, no. A Navy <laughs> captain? Navy captain. I'm like, oh, yeah. I said, full birds and above, you do not mess with. Yeah. Although I did watch a good friend of mine... Um, We'll just call him Chuck. He was a, a CW5, and we're doing the Tora Bora campaign, right? So we're doing the cave complexes and stuff. Bin Laden's already kind of got across the border, we think, yeah. but we're checking all the caves. And we got this big assault. We think we, he might be on our side of the border after all, and there's one little building. And the general comes in. He's a C-130 pilot, right, by trade. And he's like, here's what you guys should do. We come up opposite directions, and we get on both sides of the building. And the valleys are, like, just big enough for one Chinook. You can't mm -hmm. pass each other. And Chuck looks up at him and goes, sir, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. And the general just goes, well, fine, you guys do it. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and so this, this, so this guy, this guy, Chuck, this guy, one of my mentors. Yeah. You know, it's like. Wow, that's how you do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if you're totally in the right, I mean, you're talking about taking and, um, you know, you have men's lives at stake here uh, that you're controlling. The Tora Bora, though, I thought that was, I don't know, I guess I, I always got, got the impression of more of um, a lot of bomb dropping in that time frame. Well, there was. Yeah. You know, the mountains glowed. Yes. With the night vision goggles, you yeah. could come up. Like, even when they weren't dropping bombs, you could see the glowing mountain from a distance. No lie. Yeah. Did you get a point of reference uh, for your night vision? Oh, uh, it was amazing. You know, the, <laughs> you know the, the only thing that equates to that is if you fly out west when they've got the big wildfires. Yeah. And, the you know, even though they've put the fire out, the ground is still so, showing mm, up in your night vision high. goggles. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Afghanistan... You know, I was lucky enough to be part of just about every major operation other than the, you know, final yeah. ball there, you know. But I think my last combat assignment, combat tour, was in 2012. So anything that happened after that, you know, I had nothing to do with Well, let's let's talk. What, what happened in between the period, because I don't want to go too fast, right. um, too, too quickly, uh, or too far too quickly. What, before um, 2001... Between ninety five and two thousand one, um, what was the one sixtieth like at that time frame? It was great. Yeah, I mean, it was everything you'd hope it would be. In that, you know, the unit doesn't have any tents, right, for the army, right? So you stay in hotels, not bad ones. You know, they're always something, you know, a Marriott or a, a DoubleTree or something like that. And you go and train in the environment. So we would go to Colorado and fly in the mountains and use supplemental oxygen which is why we were good with that. And then, um, you know, 10th group would give us ski tickets, right? And we'd go <laughs> ski for free, right? And uh, <laughs> so that was that. And then you'd go out to San Diego and work with the SEALs, and they'd, you know, do stuff with you. And then, or Virginia Beach, you know, you go ride the, the, the CACs and the HSACs, the big boat, the cigarette boats that the SEALs have. And uh, you'd air refueling everywhere you went. You know, and uh, it was just a blast. It had to be. I mean, you're staying at Doubletree with the chocolate chip cookies yeah. that yes, are warm. The cookies, I mean, yeah. holy cow. <laughs> no, it was good. And, you know, we, we were out in Knoxville one time. Uh, we had just fielded the terrain following radar, and we were doing our training out there. And because there's military training routes where you can actually fly without being able to see out the window 
filing um, an IFR flight plan, instrument flight rules. So that was a unique place, and it was, you know, two-hour flight from Campbell. And this uh, retired Army major comes up to us at breakfast, and he's like, why are you guys here? Well, you know, we know he's a retired guy. He's got a hat like this on, you know. And we're trying to make nice with him, and we didn't realize he was a hostile, you know, questioner. Oh, wow. So it's the, fir- it's the first and only time I've had to use my public affairs guidance, uh, you know, little card, you know, if you have questions, call this number. You know, yeah. Thing. And he wanted to know why we weren't in tents. I said, well, we don't own any tents, you know, and we're here doing this thing. And he's like, I can't believe I've never stayed in a hotel in my military career. And he just was livid. And his wife was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he stormed off. And I was like, wow, that was something. Yeah. You know, but so that's what the 160th was like. And um, at the time, was it Kosovo, I think, was was a big deal. Yeah. And there was a guy named Milosevic, was the, the general over there. And uh, we were trained to go get him, right? Big, you know, penetrating an integrated air defense network, you know, the, all the Cold War stuff that, you know, we were equipped for. And uh, I can't remember what happened to him. He ended up getting caught or something. I, I don't either. Uh, it's funny how we don't remember that particular uh, time period and stuff around Kosovo because it was. It was almost like a blip on the radar, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. between 19, you think about all the, the conflicts between, I came in and um, joined in 79, but came, uh, um, came to basic and everything, or OSIT in 80. So you, you the Iran hostage uh, crisis was going on into, you know, all the different um, stuff that were smaller, Panama, um uh, Somalia, um, Desert Storm, and I call it Desert Storm being small. We, I mean, we ramped up big, and then it was like yeah. over. Um, and then, um, God, Kosovo. I'm trying to think of all the different things that happened in that time for, uh, period, but they were just like a quick, you know, get it done. Right. You know, type and of so thing. here's the funny thing. Remember, I, I told you earlier that uh, we had to write letters to prospective you know, uh, volunteers, right? And I said, you know, the battalion commander asked us to do this. I'm like, no one's going to bite. The people I know that would do it are here already. Mm -hmm. They were out in the army with me before, and now they're here. The other guys that are out there that I know are not going to do this, right? (laughs) And I wrote, you know, a couple of letters. We each had to write five, and all five, the ones I wrote, you know, four of them politely declined, and the fifth one was a guy who... I really didn't want, but he's the only other guy I knew. And he's like, you know, screw you. We're not doing that. You know, why would I want to do that? I was like, yeah. Double tree cookies. Yeah. Double tree. Right. <laughs> yeah, we don't stay in tents. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah. And generally, if you deploy somewhere, the idea is you go do your job and come back. Yeah. And so I told the battalion commander, uh, a guy named Andy Milani, a great guy. And he goes, Al, what do you think? And I go, sir, I think this is <laughs> what we need for retention is a war. I said, we just, we need a real world. I wasn't thinking, like, you know. Somebody heard you on your <laughs> yeah. phone or whatever. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, we did a lot. We, we were doing things like um, non-combatant evacuation orders, you know, like, okay. uh, what was that, uh, in the Congo. You know, yeah. our third battalion ended up doing that one. You know, we were all mad. They got to do it. We didn't. You know, we went to a JRTC instead. Oh, fun, fun. Um, for yeah. Polk? Yeah, yeah. And that was one of those big ones as well. So it was a big deal that yeah. we were there. But, you know, they did a real world, and we didn't. So, But he goes, 
Now we don't really need a war. I'm like, yeah, just a little one. <laughs> and that'll, that'll keep everybody, you know, feel like they're doing their the job they learned. Wow. 9-11 happens. You're in the 160th. Um, they're already starting to decide what they're going to do. And most people have probably seen the movie 12 Horsemen, um, but heard about fifth groups, ODA 595. So what, what, you know, if you haven't seen that, then go watch the movie and everything else, but we'll get into the, a lot of what happened and, and certainly your perspective, but I'm curious more about, all right, we see the fifth group's perspective about how they got the information, what they were looking at. Um, what was your, your perspective? How did you guys get read in and what were you guys perceiving as you went into this mission set? Well, uh, so the book's 12 strong, 12 strong. Yeah. And, uh, or, um, they have another name for it as well. Um, Oh, the horse soldiers. Yeah. 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 Did I so just call it 12 horsemen? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, there's two different copies of the same book. They just yeah. recovered it yeah. and did the when they did the movie. But, um, yeah, so I had just, I was the lead pilot for B Company, second of the 160s, right? So uh, they call it an SIP, standardization instructor pilot. So I was like the chief pilot, if you will, and of the company. And I got moved across the street to the headquarters to be the battalion SIP, which I did not want to do, but I got dragged across. <laughs> would that be the equivalent of like a Mike Golf? You'd think like the lead, like, uh, you know, like an armor yeah. sense. Like oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. The subject matter expert. Yes, yes, system. yes. A master gunner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, also as a flight lead, so anything that comes up, I'm the the planner, I'm the briefer, yeah. and I lead the actual mission. Yep. And there's I don't know five or six of us. And um, so I'm across the street. The next guy, Andy, moves up to take my position. And then we're down at JRTC, and I'm like a loner, right? So I fly with them to keep my, my hours, but I don't really belong to them. I belong to the colonel. And um, we get down there. The towers get hit. And you know, we, the colonel and I drive back to Fort, uh, Fort Campbell from Polk. We rented a car because nothing was flying. And uh, we get up there get a, a brief on what's going on, and the next day I'm in Tampa. I drove down to Tampa with a team of planners. And what's interesting about that is 5th Group was using a very Cold War model of planning, the isolation, right? So they're one room over from me. I don't know it, and they don't know I'm over there. Think of the questions we could have posed to each other mm -hmm. right? or helped each other out. And I'm there to plan personnel recovery. So the, the air crews that are going to bomb it, you know, that kind of stuff. If they go down or reject, you know, I'm going to take a team of Air Force PJs and go rescue them, right? So we're, on, we're sitting on alert. And uh, the mountains there are just the elevations and the, and the terrain were something nobody had expected. I mean, even our performance planning doesn't go as high or as hot or high as cold as it, as it ended up being. We had to interpolate or extrapolate with the charts and uh, so we go over to Afghanistan we were there before fifth group actually so we were uh, very first maybe the first week of October maybe the last week of September it's kind of cloudy as to how that played up we took 21 C-17s brought four Chinooks over and two, three DAPs the direct action penetrator the armed Blackhawks and uh, we built them up and we waited while the bombing campaign happened and 
we had competition. The, uh, the MH-53s uh, were down in Pakistan, so the Air Force Special Operations uh, Aviation was our big competitor back in those days, and they don't exist anymore. <laughs> they, they just... <laughs> they got put out of business. <laughs> they did. They did. And uh, But, you know, so the it was a big math problem, you know, all right, if somebody goes down on this mountain, you know, how long will it take us to get there and how much gas do we need and how, what kind of a payload can you carry? And there was no electronic planning software at the time for that. It was all paper charts and calculator. And we would have, you know, we devised a couple of ways to come up with an answer pretty quick. And then the, um, the Air Force would beat us time-wise. Like on a, we do a planning exercise, like, all right, let's see how long it takes. And we would guarantee that the Chinooks up north and TF Dagger could launch uh, N plus 30, right? So notification of a crash, plus 30 minutes we could be in the air. And the Air Force was like, we can do N plus 25, you know. It's like name that tune. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, the colonel's all over me. Al, you yeah. got to get faster. And I'm like, I can't. I can't get any faster. What was the reason why you thought that you couldn't? Well, I couldn't. I mean, I literally, oh, little, literally just we couldn't move that fast. Yeah. You know, I mean, because you had to determine the elevations and the maps back then. I mean, these were paper maps. This isn't yeah. like a computer. Yeah. And you're having to evaluate all the spot elevations and, and stuff. And to do it, because what, what we were worried about was in Colorado the year before, one of our Chinooks was landing to the top of a pinnacle. It was about 12,500 feet. And the rotor drooped, like the rotor speed slowed down. And the generators kicked offline, and they essentially crashed on top of a snow-covered hill. And there was no warnings, no alerts, no nothing, right? And what it turned out to be is a condition called NG top-out. So it's the gas producer of the turbine engines couldn't produce enough power. So, But because it didn't produce enough power, it didn't get hot enough to trip any of the alerts. Because of an elevation issue at that yeah. point? Yeah. So now we had to be aware that, you know, okay, well, Performance planning is kind of an educated guess anyway. So we had to put a little bit of a buffer in there because what we didn't want to do is get into some box canyon at a hover and then the rotor droops because you're going nowhere but down. <laughs> so that's why in good conscience I couldn't just throw a number out there. But see, they hadn't had that experience. But, no. And, and, yeah, and so what happened allowed you guys to at least to plan for all contingency, you know, Right. And Operations, the, and yeah. And they were coming out of Pakistan. The mountains weren't as big. Uh, so we yeah. had to get across the Hindu Kush, yeah. and they didn't have to. And they're, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but their aircraft couldn't hover uh, at most of the conditions in Afghanistan. And that's why they're not here, folks. That is yeah. why they're not here. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've always heard that's the reason the Kai was never worked in Afghanistan was because of yep. elevation issues. Same with Little Birds, the MH6s from yeah. the uh, 160th. They could use them in a couple of different locations, you know, down in Kandahar. Mm -hmm. Out near uh, Kaust. Maybe, they, maybe out west towards the desert and right. stuff like that, but, but they, anything east. And they couldn't get there on their own. They had to ride yeah. in on a C-130, and they go yeah. out and they do a couple operations. And, uh, you know, they, it's a great aircraft for what it does, but it's not. Yeah. It's, it's slow. It's underpowered. But, boy, if you're looking for, a, you know, somebody to put some rockets on target. You know, yeah, to the guys. Yeah. You know, um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was the reason why. That, that was that was what we were always told is we had obviously 64s, we had 60s, and then the 47s were over there. They were prominent, and then the crazy Russian jingle bird guys that just kind of teetered all over Afghanistan. Yeah. Those are the four birds you would see mostly. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, it's like, so in Vietnam, you saw the Huey. Right. Right. Is everywhere. When you see Afghanistan footage, it's always a, a Chinook. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's the only thing that can, can fly in almost all the conditions. And we had to, you know, in the early days, the Taliban had all the key low terrain and the passes. So we had to go over the big mountains. And so we had to use oxygen and, you know, stuff like that, that other units, you know, they might talk like they use it, but except for the guys in Alaska uh, or maybe Fort Lewis, mm -hmm. you know, we were the only other people using it in helicopters. So in the movie, it shows the Chinook pilot, you know, having to get up about 25,000 feet, I think it was, or whatever in that elevation. Um, were you guys doing a lot of oxygen runs and, and everything and practicing prior to this whole thing kicking off with Task Force Dagger? Yeah, actually, a funny story. So remember I said we needed a war? Yeah. So um, uh, we, were, we were setting up a unit in Korea, right? Um, Echo Company 160 SOAR. And they took half of our company's helicopters, right? Because the one... One company does JSOC support, and the other one does the rest of the Army's special operations. And so they cut our unit in half, right? So they took our 12 aircraft, made it down to six, and they swapped the airframes around so that all the ones that went to Korea had, like, like zero time on them, if you will. Like, they could go and just fly, you know, for two years before they had to work on them. And they left all the ones with us. So we had, like, one helicopter that was flyable, and the rest were all in the hangar being torn apart, inspected on a phase phase maintenance. So what are we going to do? And, and at the time, our um, area of responsibility was the Middle East, right? So we did, you know, uh, Egypt and Qatar and all that stuff. We did all those big exercises like Bright Star and, you know, things like that. And now we weren't big enough to do it. So they gave it to 3rd Battalion, 3rd of the 160th, and we didn't have a mission. And they were talking about you know, sucking us into a company and just making it a bigger company. And we're like, no. So I came up with this idea and I called it the Bravo project. <laughs> so the commander, Joe, we'll call him, uh, disagrees with me. He thinks he came up with the name if he's listening. Yeah. Whatever sure. you play drives, it is yours or you'll give yeah. him credit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's that first chapter of the book where I'm arguing with the guy. Yeah, that's him. Okay. And uh, so I'm like, all right, we're going to call it the Bravo Project. And what we're going to do is we're going to turn, uh, we're going to go do counter drug operations with 7th Group in South America. And uh, he threw me out of his office. I said, think about it. You know, as I'm getting thrown out, we can self-deploy. We don't have to worry about the Air Force hearing us, you know, like going to Europe or something. And uh, he said, get out of here. You stupid. And next day he goes, man, we're going to do this thing. I'm calling it the Bravo Project. <laughs> <laughs> right, and we're gonna do. That. I was like, hey, thanks. But anyway, so what we did is we um, we got permission from the operations guy, you know, the S three, yeah. to go out to Fort Bragg and talk to Seventh Group and say, hey, look, we got some Chinooks. We'd like to come down and do some stuff up in the Andes Mountains and all this other stuff. And they're like, yeah, great. And so we go back, and the S three says, what do you mean you, they want you to come? Because I didn't think you'd be successful. We were kind of insulted. Was like, really, we're a bunch of Warrant officers whose job is to plan worldwide deployments. So he goes, look, I'll tell you what. He goes, you can go to Central America because they already have Chinooks there. You can kind of blend in down in uh, Sotocano, I think it was. And uh, we said, all right, but we can go to South America if we do this right? And he's like, yeah. So um, we started training for doing stuff in South America, really. You know, the Andes Mountains, so we had to have oxygen. We... 
reevaluated what we considered threats because now you don't have radar guided munitions. Now you've got, you know, booby traps and mines and RPGs and heavy machine guns and stuff. And we actually went out to Fort Carson, Pinion Canyon. So we were doing our mountain training up there in oxygen, landing in the snow and such. And he got a tank, an M1 tank is out there, right? And I came down, I landed next to it, shut down, went over, said hi. And the, the tank commander was an E6. And uh, that guy was super sharp, well-spoken, very proud of his tank. So he showed us his tank. And I'm like, hey, so the commander here says I should worry about you, you know, shooting helicopters. And he goes, hell yeah. He goes, what do you think kills tanks? I go, other tanks? He goes, no. He goes, artillery and, and helicopters. helicopters. He goes, so yeah, we practice. I'm like, all right, so now we're going to do a little game, right? I'm going to try to sneak up on him and get by him. And I could sneak up on him, right? I mean, I just dropped down into the, the little, you know, moguls and swales of the stuff. And I'd do, you know, 70 knots. And I'd speed up to like 150 and just whoo, fly right by him. And all of a sudden, I'd hear, laser, laser, 6 o'clock. He just slewed around and shot me in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I, no matter what I do, I could not get past him, you know. It's a good tanker. Cover. Good tanker. Yeah. yeah. But, but so what that did is it, it gave us a whole new idea of threat assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, you know, whether it's, you know, like I said, artillery, RPGs, which is what took me out of the sky, you know, as an RPG. But, uh, yeah, that tank, tank commander really impressed me. So were you doing high elevation and pushing the helicopter at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we've been doing that since the 90s anyway. We're always going up to Colorado in the mountains because the SF guys, 10th group, had uh, snowmobiles. Yeah. Called Mosts. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what that, mobile over snow transport or something. And they're heavy when you're going up to 14,000 feet. And we'd go land in the snow cloud so you can't see. And you've got a little video game you play. In the cockpit, it's called a hover page, and it's got a little circle and a line and a little crosshair, and you have to make all three of them line up to, to be either steady, you know, at a hover and come straight down. And yeah. the crew chiefs can usually see straight down, but you can't see in the cockpit. And the sand is the same way. So you're, you're like spinters, like, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're sucking seat cushion. <laughs> yeah. And luckily we had these nice black seat, uh, sheep, sheepskin Seat cushions. Oh, nice. <laughs> they come back, come back out of the trees. <laughs> the first ones I've seen of those actually were uh, in a um, taxi cab in Germany when I got uh, arrived in Germany in like 1982, and I get in this taxi cab, and it's cold as all get out, and it's got that nice, sheep, yeah. fluffy, you feel yeah. good. First time I ever rode in a Beamer or a Mercedes as well. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Those so, were hot. So so we were doing good all this, all this yeah. training that we were doing for, for South America. You know, the Andes Mountains are bigger than the mountains in Afghanistan, yeah. right? And um, the uh, one of our crew chiefs, father, was the command master chief of the USS Enterprise, I believe. And they had just undergone uh, overhaul of the engines or the reactors or something. And what they were going to do is they were going to do a cruise, like a shakedown cruise, and they were going to go around South America. And we were going to, he had arranged it where we were going to go on that ship and we were just going to go around South America doing training missions, you know. And so we were, you know, training with the Navy, which we did a lot of shipboard operations as well. And uh, when Afghanistan happened, you know, 
we had some experience with the the power limits and the oxygen use and you know all this other stuff that had we not trained up for the Andes Mountains and the and the counter drug stuff in South America, we wouldn't have been as proficient. You know, we had will have still have toyed with it, but yeah, the proficiency was was great. And you know, we we also went to Kuwait two years in a row uh, when Saddam threw the nuclear inspectors out. Mm-hmm. So that was in you know ninety nine and two thousand, I think. Oh, when he um, denied the UN resolutions. Yeah. Okay. And so we went over to help enforce that. Yeah. And uh, we ended up not doing anything because he, he capitulated. But then we stayed for another seven months to support Southern Watch, which was the no-fly no zone enforcement. And every night we flew. I mean, every weeknight, some weekends, we had nothing else to do. So we would go do a, a mission where we would, you know, we had the SAS with us as our ground force. So we would go do a, you know, a hostage rescue, you know, simulated and then we'd hit a tanker on the way there and the way back. We had our own MC-130s. So we were, that is probably the most proficient I've ever been in air refueling with those two years. And when it came to Afghanistan at the high altitudes, that became a real big deal. Because we in the community had decided that 6,000 feet above sea level was as high as we wanted to air refuel because it, aircraft doesn't handle quite the same. And all of the incidents we had were the probe or the rotor hit the drogue, the um, the little nozzle that comes yeah, out. It's yep. like a hose that drags a donut shape. Yeah, and it, it's kind of going in the wind, right. flapping. But every every time we ever hit one of those, you know, our unit, it was always above 6,000 feet. So it was kind of like that unwritten rule, we don't air refuel above 6,000 feet. Well, there's no land below 6,000 feet where we were operating, yeah. you know. So we were going to have to air refuel at like 12,000 feet. We didn't even know if that was possible. You know, I mean, mathematically it was, but... Practically, was it? So when we get to Karshi Kanabad, which is TF Dagger, so that's Uzbekistan, just north of Afghanistan, the very first thing I do when my aircraft is built up is the MC-130 and I go out at night, and we start out at 4,000 feet, 5,000 feet, nice. 6,000, and we just keep going until we know that the highest we could possibly refuel based on the terrain was about 12,000 feet. That's an AGL at that point, so sea level you're looking at? Well, that was it. No, it was MSL, right? So um, you're still talking. Well, where we were going to air refuel at 12,000 feet was going to be like four or 500 feet above the ground. Okay. Right. Like just is just high enough to do it. And we went out and I did it at all those altitudes. I came back with thumbs up and said, "Hey, as long as you do it slow and easy, no big, no big deal." You know what? What it turns out is guys had were just uh, back, you know, in the early 90s. They were taught a little bit more aggressive manner of uh, movement to contact. Mm. And, and because we did all that air refueling in Kuwait, you know, two years in a row, I mean, seven months and seven months of every night flying air refueling, you, you really get the, the nuances and kind of like, I, I just bring it in and give a little kiss. All those guys want to get in there quick, get it over with. Yeah. Just got to go nice, smooth. Because yeah. the, the problem is that the, um, the probe tip, the refueling probe tip on a Chinook is beneath the rotor system, the forward rotor system. So if you kind of ease up on the drogue like a Blackhawk would, um, you know, the, the thing could bounce up and hit the rotor, right? So they would they move as fast as they could to get to it. Like you said, they were kind of scared of it hitting. So, so but the, uh, the tip that I've always saw the tip, maybe I'm thinking about something else. What's the, what's the big rod that goes out underneath the... Uh, that's it. That's, that's the it. feeling probe, yeah. But... I, 
That's low. That's before the uh, below the cabin, right? Well, but it goes on a Chinook. It's it's a fixed length, right? The like twenty feet or something like that, or ten. Yeah, it's about nineteen yeah. feet something. But the rotor blades are thirty feet. Yeah. Oh. So the and then so you got to worry about the the pitch. The drogue right. is actually underneath the canopy or the the drip line of the rotor blade right. coming into that that stick. Right. And so once it's on the probe tip, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. So it's no big deal. So you'd have to worry about the nose of the Chinook and no erratic, so some stability had to be there, and then make sure that the pitch didn't get yeah. down. Right. And yeah, then you've the got the pitch. factor of the wind yeah. and the... Oh, yeah, there's, <laughs> all, kind, there's all kinds of things there. And, yeah. yeah. So there's, what, like a 15-foot window up up bottom to top? Yep. That's and then right. you've got to make like a 10-foot window from into probe to into rotor. Right. So, so you go about 10 to 15 feet out. <laughs> You know, level with the drogue, lined up. You know, you, it'll line up the probe, and it'll move around, and you watch the wings because the wings will move before the drogue does. And, uh, you know, it's tipping back and forth and pitching up and down, and you're watching that. And some nights it's like glass. It's super easy. And other nights, you know, <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> now, the responsibility of the pilot on the other end, flying the, I guess, what is it, the KC-135? 130, yeah. yeah. And their job is to hold hold speed and heading and try to hold it as steady as they can. Mm. So the onus is on you. Yeah. He's just pulling something, yeah. and you you got to make it happen. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. No, that's really cool. And like I said, sometimes you got it, sometimes you don't. You know, and like I was better from the left seat, so the probe is on the right. And so the guy mm-hmm. in the right seat has all the advantage. He can look right down the probe yeah. and, and see it align. The guy in the left seat has a little bit of a parallax. He's... He's got to imagine where the probe is. But I did it so much that I was I was happier to do it from the left seat than the right. Hmm. I felt like there was too much pressure in the right seat. Like, how could you screw up in the right seat? Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you're looking down the probe. But, you know, that's not true. But if, if you're in the left seat, it's like, dude, why can't you get that? You're in the right seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do it? And you go do it. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> so when did you guys get heads up then? For ODA 595, was it that you heard about that prior to going over, so you were building up, or, or for Task Force Dagger, or when did that combination, no. yeah. So Task Force Dagger, for for us, was always about uh, personnel recovery for the bomber crews. So that's all it was. We didn't know anything about the SF initiative with the UW campaign, right, unconventional warfare. So we were working for an Air Force colonel doing the personnel recovery. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, fifth group shows up. Like, you know, one day we get up and there's an isolation facility, a bunch of tents with barbed wire around it, you know, that wasn't there, like, when I went to bed. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell is that, right? And then like, oh, Al, you need to get over here and brief the new colonel. I'm like, what new colonel? It's Colonel Mulholland, a fifth group commander. And so, uh, you know, we started, I had this map that um, I called the pretty map, right? I had uh, NEMA make it, and it's now NGA, right? It used to be NEMA. And um, it's the only thing of its kind. I wish I could find that thing. I mean, I don't know where it went, but it's a that thing made all the difference to explain. Because prior to Afghanistan, everybody was used to what can I carry and how far can I carry it, mm-hmm. right? So we do what we call coffee can rings, like your emblem here, right? A big circle that represents on a map 250 miles, right? I can go 250 miles loiter for 15 minutes and come back 250 miles and carry 40 people. 
In Afghanistan, that's not the case because you may have a piece of elevation that's 12,000 feet and a quarter mile away, it's 3,000 feet. Big difference in what I can carry there, right? I mean, I can, in, one, in one sense, I can carry 70 people and the other one, I can carry five, right? Which is the whole thing with the Red Wings, you know, why there was so few SEALs on the QRF aircraft to go help those guys, you know? Hmm. So anyway, these new, these people would come in, they'd say, well, I want to know how come you can't carry, you know, 50 people or whatever, like you do back home. It's like, well, in Kuwait, I could do that for you. I could tell you, I could fly to Baghdad, do 50 minutes, come back, and I could carry a, a Humvee and 15 guys. Right? I can't tell you that here because I don't know. And the pretty map was how I was able to show them because it was colored in DTED, um, Defense Terrain Elevation Data, I think they call it. So everything above 12,000 feet was red. Everything that was you know between that and 9,000 feet was Amber and you know that kind it's of thing. It was a heat map that showed elevation. Yes. Yeah. Three so, dimensional. Nope. Well, it, it was sort of topographic. Yeah. And it was it was groundbreaking for its time, right? This guy handmade this map for me. Oh. Right? I mean, he put all these elements together. It took him like two days, and um, we we just roll it up and lay it out. And it's you like, didn't have any overlays or anything. No. On top of no. This was, you know, a general. You know, general <laughs> would come in. I want to know why you can't just do coffee can circles like you do in wherever. Yeah. And we'd lay the map out and go, well, sir, where it's red, I can carry five guys. Where it's green, I can carry, you know, the whole spiel. That and was they, cool. And we did that from Mulholland, right, Carl Mulholland. And he looks at me and he goes, damn, that's some information I really could have used about two weeks ago. And that's when I found out they were in the next room down in Tampa. Oh, shit. If they'd have just brought me in, you know, hey, you know, Hey, uh, 160th guy, can you come talk to us for a minute? You know, but they were keeping it a secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's because they, at that point, they actually dropped them 40, what was it, 40 kilometers or 40 miles off target or something like that, wasn't it? it no? Nothing I know. Okay. Like, we never put anybody off target. And the cool thing we always did was whenever I put a ground force in, I, I store the location, right? It's a little button store. And, you know, we also have a video a VHS tape back then, you know, uh, running, which has the position on it. So if I came back for the after action review and said, you put us off target, you know, really? Well, let's take a look. Oh, look, it's right on those the coordinates you gave me. Uh, yeah. It sure, looked, <laughs> it sure looked farther. You know, especially, you know, we used to do these different types of infills. You had to the X, to the Y, and an offset, right? And to the X just meant you were landing yeah. outside the building, right? Yeah. And, um, in order to do that, we had rules that we had set that um, you had to have rotary wing casts. So Apaches or, or Daps or Little Birds had to go with you to the X, right, to defend you while you're yeah. down in the troops. And if you couldn't get those, you could use an F-15E um, or an AC-130, but you had to land 300 meters and out, right, so outside of, you know, effective rifle range. And um, just so happened one day I was in Iraq, and I was working with Delta, and the guy says, all right, I want to go right here. I go to the X, and he goes, no, it's not the X. We don't have rotor wing casts. This, uh, this Y intersection over here. I said, oh, not the X, but the Y. And we played it up, you know, going to the Y, and it actually stuck. Yeah. And now we actually call yeah, it the Y. y yeah. right? And then the cool. offset is you put them, you know, 5 to 10 kilometers away, and Depending on the conditions, they might even hear you, the bad guys, right? But by the time everybody gets their act together and they walk there, you can watch on the 
on the ISR feeds, you know, the bad guys on target, well, they'll hear a helicopter, they'll get alert, they'll, they'll be on the parapets of the roof with their rifles out, you know, and everybody's woken up. And then as time goes by, it's sling arms, mm -hmm. then the rifles leaning up Take against the, the building, the they're smoking a cigar, we start right? leaning over, right? Yep. And then they go to sleep. And right about the time the guys get to the last a charge last. on the door and things yep. go. So that was that. <laughs> wow. What was, um, you know, a after Task Force Dagger and everything, or after that was all complete, um, what was, you know, outside of some of the things you just pointed, what were some of the things that you guys took away from that that y you knew then could start really helping you in the, the war going forward? Well, uh, the one thing we haven't even really talked about is the terrain following radar. Right? I talked a little bit about it in Knoxville with a guy that didn't like that we didn't have tents. So this piece of equipment will allow the aircraft to fly in instrument meteorological conditions so you can't see out the window at 100 foot, 300 foot, or 500 foot clearance altitude. Right. So what that means is I can fly, imagine driving your car down the interstate in a serious fog, you know, fog bank, right? You can't see out the window. But your, uh, what do they call that? Now, the adaptive cruise control can still see the lines. Mm, yeah. It'll still drive it, right, until it doesn't. But back then, I mean, the aircraft wouldn't do it for you. It gave you a little cue. As a matter of fact, those coins I gave you, Yeah. if you look at the, so that's an attitude indicator, Right from an aircraft, and look to the left side. There's a little diamond. Yep. Okay, that is a TFQ. So, the the power is your left hand, right? It's called a thrust control, and, or a collective and a normal and a single rotor helicopter. So that diamond will trend up and down slowly, right? And that will keep you on whatever altitude you've set it at. So let's say 500 feet above the ground, right? So as long as I'm 500 feet above the ground and it looks out about 10 miles and it sees a mountain and it goes, oh, you're about 10 miles from this mountain. Based on the performance characteristics of the aircraft right now, you need to start a climb now. And that diamond will go low and turn into an inverted uh, triangle, which just represents pull power. Mm -hmm. So you pull the power until you're in a climb that will clear it and then it goes to a diamond, right? I mean, this is all you know, months of training just to learn how to do it. but. So you're playing a little video game, you know, following that cue to stay above the, the terrain, right? So we learned how to use that. So in peacetime, it was a general officer signature to allow you to do that for real. Like you could do it in the flight simulator and you could do it with night vision goggles where you could, when guy would flip his goggles up and follow the cue, but the other guy was a, a safety pilot, essentially. You know, if you were going to hit something, he'd just take, yeah, I have the controls, you know, and that would be that. But now this is for real. And the problem with this damn thing is sometimes it reboots unexpectedly. Oh, so I think I, you're, you're about to make an important phone call and your iPhone locks up, right? And you're like, damn it, it, it won't, yeah. you got to reset your iPhone. Well, yeah. that's what happens here, except your life, you know. And all you can do is climb as high as you can go and as fast as you can go. We used to say, climb like your life depends on it, because it does. <laughs> but we learned how to use that. Um, the horse soldiers infill, that's how I got there, was... So I didn't actually go to 25,000 feet on that mission. They got that yes. off on the story. Yes. That was a that was a following mission. It was a Kazavak where uh, my whole crew was hypoxic. And I, it was me and one crew chief were on a different oxygen system. And we did it all on ourselves. And everybody else was, like, drunk. Oh, God. Yeah. And 
And so in that case there, it wasn't a 25. It was... It was like 12, 13,000. Okay. But I was carrying the whole team. So originally I was supposed to carry half of the ODA in one aircraft and half in the other. But in order to do the ODA 555, triple nickel, they needed three Chinooks to, to do it because they were going over bigger mountains. Yeah. So they had less fuel. So they had to carry... You know, less people. Less people. So I got stuck with carrying the entire team, which meant that I had to air refuel in and out, which is something we always tried not to do. Yeah. Uh, but that became the norm, you know, get air refueling when you need it. If you don't, if you can't get on the hose, you land in the middle of the desert, pull security, and someone will fly gas out to you. Good Lord. You know, which happened to me once. You know, the, the tanker was a no-show. Wow. No. Yeah. Wow. It was, we, we had Papa models out of the 8th SOS, and uh, those guys were awesome. The best tanker sport I've ever had. They got pulled away to support the 53s down in Pakistan, and they sent uh, Talon 2s instead. Right? So Talon 2s, basically the same aircraft, but it has a smaller fuel capacity. And their combat Talons, right? what that means is they like to do Drops, you know, drop car, drop, uh, you know, supplies and stuff like that, and uh, they prioritized the drop over fuel. And uh, oh, how nice of them! Yeah, I mean, they didn't. I don't think they realized we'd run out of gas, but you know, still. <laughs> oh my God! So, um, was it as depicted within the movie that it was kind of jumpy and in the whole bed? And, oh yeah, no, it was. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was cold. So they tried to depict that in the movie. Yeah, you know, with the snow coming in the window. I mean, those guys were frozen. I mean, you could turn the heater on, but the doors are open because the miniguns are hanging out. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, they did. You know, it's funny. I talked to Jerry Bruckheimer at the at the premiere. We had a little icebreaker with the actors and the ODA and the pilots. And I said, I was having a drink with Jerry, and I was like, hey, uh, I hope you didn't make us look bad. I said, every time I see a special operations helicopter pilot get shot at, they freak out and crash. You know, like The Rock, uh, White House Down, or whatever, you know. It's like, these guys are flying so low, they trip a traffic cam. You know, they're that good. And then the first round, they're shooting at us. And they they crash into each other. And he goes, well, he goes, I think you're going to like it. He goes... But keep this in mind. He says, we made a movie, not a documentary. Like, okay. So if you, if you approach it with that aspect, right? And then, you know, they didn't show very much of the Chinooks in the movie, but uh, in the deleted scenes, there was a lot more. Of <laughs> I, the, love, uh, I love when you're talking about that. You mentioned that <laughs> off air. Yeah. And I will say this, that the, um, the 160 of Chinook that they did when they did the medevac, the dust off out of there, yeah. That was probably the most pristine-looking helicopter I've ever seen. I mean, everything that was shiny, that what could be shiny. That's because it was a brand-new MH-47G. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just so clean. Yeah. The that first paint. Chinook I got on, there was a blow-up doll on the jump seat, and it was, it was just disgusting. <laughs> it was stuff hanging everywhere, right. and it was just... But you know what they did, though, is, is uh, the crew chiefs that... Um, that set that aircraft up for the movie. So that was the 160th that did it. And uh, the pilot that was flying it would call me every day. And he'd say, Al, uh, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? They want to know for the thing. And I was like, well, I didn't go to 25,000 feet on that mission. You know, we didn't have to use oxygen. We went to 12, maybe 13. And he's like, well, when did you go to 25? I was like, the two nights later. <laughs> <laughs> but that was on the Hindu Kush, not yeah. over here. So the big thing with the two, the two different flights is that 
you know, the one that went to the mountains that same night, um, you know, they had to encounter bad weather. Like I had a sandstorm. They had snow, ice, rain, you know, that kind of stuff. So they were more likely to die as we, you know, we sat around with our gallows humor. It's like, hey, you're going to die from running the mountain, and I'm going to die, you know, a surface-to-air missile, you know, because I've got to penetrate the, <laughs> the air defense. And, but you know, my buddy Andy was the other flight lead, and we would um, we'd go back to the bunker after a couple of nights, and he had a bottle of bourbon he got from the CIA. And um, he goes, what do you think? I, go, I think we're going to die. Like, in the next mission or two, he goes, yeah, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and but we did this off on our own so nobody would hear us, you know. Because wow. in front of everybody, we're like, yeah, we're gonna do this, you know. And then we'd meet. Oh man, we're screwed. <laughs> Is it, if you were the pilot that brought him in, were you also the guy that came in for the dust off? Then the no, that it didn't happen quite that way. But, oh, but we Damn were. It. See, th- that's what I hate about know, movies, uh, right? But we did. You know, when uh, Mike Spann was down there, he got killed in the prisoner uprising at the Dostum's headquarters, the Kuala Jungi. Uh, we, I was the QRF for that, and that was like a you know a flight of four plus two daps, you know. So that was a little bit different. It was actually a little more exciting yeah. than they did in the movie. And you know, we did a lot of Kazavaks. You know, that's probably one of the the most rewarding missions you could do. You know, to fly and save some guy that isn't going to make it. Yeah, and he makes it. You know. Were you engaged um, during one of our, our old co-hosts is uh, Kat Kaylin. Um, she's off doing great things and got her master's degree in psychology and getting a doctorate degree right now and all that kind of good stuff and quite busy being a mom. But she was uh, with the original CSTs embedded with the uh, 75th Ranger Regiment early GWAD days. Um, were you there uh, at that time frame servicing those guys? Yeah. Uh, we would, I didn't really service them. We, there were different times where we would do resupplies, you know, ash and trash kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, because somebody had to do it, right? And in the early days, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure. You had the MI-17, which was the agency bird flying around in us because the weather was terrible. And... Um, so we would land outside the CSTs. Like if we were, if we put the, you know, typically it'd be the Rangers, you know, mm-hmm. put the Rangers in somewhere, they were on target doing their thing. And we'd go sit, you know, 20 minutes away or 10 minutes away at a CST, you know, just sit outside their gate, keeping them awake with the aircraft, you know, with big turbine engines. Yeah. <laughs> and they're trying to yeah. sleep. <laughs> but uh, that was my exposure to the CSTs. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. You know, every night. Every Love night. It. It's the same so, thing. Put the put the ground force in, yeah. go back and wait for Kazavac, you know, or Exfil. Yeah. And uh, you know, in the particularly hot areas, you know, we Kazavac is always hot. Like I would have these big arguments between our flight medics, the PJs, and we had this team of doctors called an SRT, a surgical resuscitation team. It's like a nurse, the anesthesiologist, a, a chest guy and a I don't know what else they had, but these guys could crack your chest in the aircraft. And, uh, but I'd be like, I'm not taking you on target. You know, you can ride in the other Chinook. We'll, we'll go get them with our medic, fly, you know, two kilometers away, sit down and transfer. But I'm not flying four freaking specialists onto it. I said, do you know what happens on, an, on a Kazavac? We're getting shot at the whole time. There's RPGs flying overhead, heavy machine gun. We are the target. It's like they shoot somebody. Like, oh, it comes the helicopters. <laughs> And uh, so those were always exciting times. Can you talk about what some of your, 
what one of your toughest mission was uh, up until you got out in 2012? The toughest mission, uh, I can honestly say, was Red Wings. It was okay. the Marcus Luttrell thing. Yeah. So we, we had a, a bunch of Chinooks in country at the time, I think about seven or eight of them, up at Bagram. And the Marines were doing an operation called Red Wings, and they needed somebody to observe uh, for Ahmed Shah to try to establish pattern of life in this little village so we knew which building to hit, and if people run out of the building, which one's likely to be him kind of thing. And uh, so they put a team of SEALs in, um, and I was supposed to be doing what they call Quick Reaction Force, QRF, and I was the oncoming QRF. The outgoing QRF was the 3rd Battalion guys, and they were supposed to hand over to me at, let's say, 10 o'clock in the morning. So I get up, I come in prepared to do my stand-up brief, and everybody's watching the big screens in the, in the jock. And I'm like, what's going on? Oh, we launched the QRF. I'm like, well, it should be me. And he's like, no, 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 no. Major Reich was in here already. They were already dressed. You know, they got in here, you know, half hour before you could. So I'm like, all right. So I'm drinking my coffee, watching, you know, bringing the SEALs in to rescue the SEALs. Mm-hmm. And um, I watch him get shot out of the sky while I'm drinking my coffee. It's like, oh, crap. Did, is that what I think just happened? I'm like, yeah. So I run down to the aircraft now. I'm the secondary QRF, and the DevGrew SEALs come with me. And we are hauling ass down there. I'm doing about 150, 160, which at that altitude is, is, is screaming. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do because there's no place to land. That's the reason they got shot down. Yeah. And so... I'm just thinking my mind is racing. It's like, oh, man, I'm going. Can I, maybe I should slow down. But I can't slow down. i got to keep going. And they finally divert me over to Jalalabad um, to rethink what's going on. Because the Apaches that, that uh, had followed them were getting shot at now. It's like, eh, maybe we don't want to put another shuck in there yet. Let's see if we can't set the conditions. And then while we were there, um, it took about a week to get everybody, maybe two weeks, to get everybody, all their bodies back, and Latrell. You know, just night after night, we would go in, and there was only three ways into the valley, right? One of them had a cloud-covered mountain, and only the Echo Model Chinooks, the mine and one other one, could do. The rest of them were all old, older Delta models, and they didn't have that equipment. So we always had to go the other two. So now it's canalized terrain. The enemy knows where mm-hmm. we have to come from, and... Um, so I'm dealing with bad weather. I've got uh, A-10s and uh, AC-130s helping me out, and uh, it's the hardest flying I ever did. Wow. Because you know, I expected not to come out each time because, the, you know, you're sitting ducks. Yeah. So when we got Latrell, when we found out about him, uh, I was going to go get him in the Chinook, and the H-860s from the Air Force had come up, and, uh, I mean, that's their job. And uh, they're like, yeah, and the Air Force is going to go pick them up. And I blew a gasket. I'm like, no way are they going to do this. I said, first of all, the elevation's too high. They can't hover there. And they're like, oh, we stripped the aircraft down. There's, like, no guns, no nothing, just people. I'm like, you guys are insane, right? I said, I'll tell you what. And, and then the, the head PJ that was planning all things says, Al, I'll tell you what. You can go pick them up if you want. But we only have about a 20-minute window of weather. And... We still need to get, you know, 40 more rangers in there to look for the rest of the survivors or bodies. He says, you pick. There's no choice there, right? I mean, i got to bring guys in. So, all right, fine. I'll plan the mission, though. 
And the Air Force guys said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked with the, the, uh, the AC-130 and the A-10s, and I came up with this plan where they'd come in a certain direction, and they'd lay diversionary fires down in a certain point. You know, I need the biggest explosions you can give me right here. I need them to look over here. And then when they land, you can close up. And then uh, they, we just move the fires around. And Latrell in his book talks about how amazing that was. And I've never talked to the guy, but it's like, okay, that's it. That was you. Yeah. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but that was the toughest, toughest flying. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think we had a, we've had several guys on there. We had um, guys who were part of 75th, uh, the recon and everything, uh, detachment and stuff, came on the show and gave their perspective. And then we had a very early on uh, Dev Guru guy that was on the show that was part of the, the force that went there to um, recover the bodies and, right. and all of that. And... Um, he actually started a company, um, I think it's called uh, Everett's Life, that is um, where now you can take DNA or certain substance and they can convert it to ink that can be used in a tattoo. Hmm. So he actually had some of the debris and sand and such, which, um, of course, they purify it and everything else. But um, he had some from the site that he had put into a tattoo uh, on his uh, body. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And in a painting. They can actually do it also into the ink of a painting. And so when you look at this one scene of this one painting and stuff, to know that within that are people that you know, yeah. you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, it really, very cool. You yeah. Know? No, I think that is neat. Yeah. yeah. So um, you were talking off air, though, about the book and a specific scene. Oh, um, it was a little excerpt that I found when you when you sent me his info. Um, it was, I guess the chapter was September tenth, two thousand one. It yeah. was a JRTC, and it was <laughs> flying under just absolute. Looks, it sounded like you guys were flying in soup. Yeah, in the in the jungles of Louisiana. It was crap. Yeah, so that's the first chapter. You can find that on my website, alancmac dot com. Uh, it's the fir- first chapter of the book. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, the night before 9-11. And uh, we're out at JRTC, crappy weather. I talk through, you know, penetrating an um, advanced air defense system and, you know, fighting with the air mission commander. Uh, you know, he's got one way of doing it, and I've got another, but I'm up front, and he's not. So <laughs> it's hard to, hard to you know, kind of wrangle a warrant officer sometimes. So what happened? Tell us. Uh, well, I, I, I lived... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it just uh, talks through the some of the procedures of of using the terrain falling radar and and how you separate a flight, get back together, how you deal with um, missiles. You know, yeah. So the, the suite of air defense equipment in the aircraft, even back then, was fairly uh, extensive and, and advanced. So you know the voice warning system talking to you, and you know it would say you know SA SA six you know two o'clock tracking. You know, SA, SA6, lock, you know, and it's like you have to do a maneuver and then pop chaff, right? Because you can't, in the movies, you know, they just pop chaff. But if you do that, it just comes out in little clumps. It's like aluminum foil strips. Yeah. And, and so you have to actually slow down and do a, a certain maneuver, you know, and I can't tell you the, the speeds or they'll shoot me. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a maneuver. And then you disappear behind that cloud of chaff. And then the radar stays on it and they think they've got you locked up and they fire yeah. the missile at it. And then if it does come at you, it you do pulse jamming, you know, and uh, 
Yeah, it's exciting. This, this is better than uh, you know Tom Cruise and Top Gun yeah, Maverick. Absolutely. You know? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Top Gun uh, Maverick, the uh, the jets that fly in that. Yeah. Are my son's unit. Oh, cool. Oh, is it really? Yeah. So he nice. just, he just left there. He's over in Portugal now. Oh wow! But, uh, yeah, that all that flying was practical effects, no CGI. That's awesome. I well, and I know that Tom has his license in just about every damn aircraft you can think of, um, and I know he does his own stunts. So that is him flying. Well, it's him in the back seat of a two seater. <laughs> so they, they made it look like he's flying. You know, Primary, really, yeah. yeah. Really, he's in the back seat. Okay. Yeah, but they're pulling the G's. The whole, you know, when he's squinting and grunting, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> No, that was some, that was some pretty cool flying. Actually, there was um, there's some future episodes that's coming up. But there's a guy that lives in my neighborhood that runs a podcast, and um, he did an episode here recently about pro. You know, is it real or is it not real? And he used to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and they were talking him and another pilot about it. But one of the uh, future guests that we're going to have on is a guy who um, was actually. Um, the only survivor of a person who was in a fighter pilot who um, who was at Mach speed and ejected, wow. and um, yeah, that's kind of. And so I'm, I'm not only am I wanting to get into the conversation about his story, but I'm really looking forward to getting into compare, contrast, even some of the stuff that was at the beginning of the movie where he got up the 10.2 or whatever yeah. and, right. you know. In the dark star. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, it'll be really uh, interesting. We'll have to talk offline because I know some, um, I know a guy who is a major right now in the Air Force. His father and I served in the Army together, and uh, he is a flight instructor and has done um, most of his career, uh, not C-130, he's been an instructor. So it'll be interesting to see if, the name might end up registering with your son. Um, so we'll talk about that. That's a small community. You know, the, yeah. um, so my son's first deployment, uh, they were over in Afghanistan, F-18. And the, it's a two-seater. So he's the backseat. Mm. He's the Wizzo. And his pilot had been an F-14 pilot during Operation Anaconda. So he found out, and he's like, oh, your dad was the one that got shot down? He goes, uh, well, let's go take a look. And they flew over Tuckergar, the mountain where we were, and a terrain feature called the Whale, which features prominently in the story, you know. And uh, he's like, they're there. He's like, I drop bombs right here and here. So Wow. That's that cool. That's kind of neat. So he, he got back to the boat. He sent me an email. And he's like, hey, Dad, I was over uh, Robert's Ridge today. I was like, wow, how about that? <laughs> Small world. Yeah, Definitely. So how was your transition out then? Because in 2012, height of the war still, you know, things are still going on pretty heavy and um, mission sets getting ready to start changing and such. But, I mean, this you've got, what, 30-plus years, 36, you know, well, 11 that, months or yeah, 35. So that, right, 35. 35 and 11. <laughs> so uh, my wife, unfortunately, really it kind of tells back to Operation Anaconda, right? So I got shot down. CNN reported it. That, you know, two Chinooks, eight people dead, right? Well, we only had four Chinooks, and I'm the flight lead of one of the teams of two, so the odds are I'm that person. And my wife finds out about it, and the when I got rescued, I got brought back to Gardez, and I, the CIA had a sat phone. And one of the guys goes, hey, uh, you might want to call your wife. This is about to hit CNN. And I was like, I can't, because if, if I call, they're going to know who it is. 
Right. Oh, yeah. Because you're, you're like a super blackout, basically, right. at this and, point. And my wife never forgave me for that when she found out, you know, that I had done that. And so here I am continuing to deploy. I'm still, because I'm a flight lead, I'm always at the pointy tip of the spear, if you will. And she turned to opioids, you know, prediction, prescription medicine. And then when that wasn't enough, she used alcohol. And it got to the point where uh, she had an overdose and died. Mm. And so, Sorry. The, yeah, well, thank you. But, you know, it was a, it was something that happened. Yeah. But, uh, and then some of that's in the book as well, you know, how I had to deal with that. But the regiment was great. You know, they offered to create jobs for me, fly as much as I want or as little as I want, deploy if I want or don't, or just be the face of the regiment with the ground forces, you know, but they didn't want me to leave. But I needed a change of venue. It's like everywhere I looked, it was either a happy memory, which made me sad that it was no longer happy, or yeah. it was a bad memory, you know, and it stayed, like that. It made it worse. Right. Yeah. So I get to go up. So she dies in September of 12, and I go up to New York City to unveil the horse soldier monument. Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah. In October. And at that time, the West Point flight detachment job was coming open to be the commander. And so I was like, you know what? This is, is this before or after Rutherford? Uh, uh, Rutledge, he's, he, Rutledge, was, he, I was, mean. he was my, he was my replacement. Okay. So oh, I didn't know the time. I hand picked him actually. Okay. Yeah. But, I, I uh, reached out to him by the way, when I made contact with you and I was, I was like, man, you're going to be able to make the show because he used to be a co-host as well. Uh, for yeah. those that don't know, former seal that became 160th uh, pilot. Yeah. Yeah. And spoke very highly of you and he's like, oh man, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not gonna be able to make that and everything. So yeah. he's out doing better things, you know, yeah. but, but here I am in the city and, and you know, I'm from the Northeast anyway. Yeah. And my mother still lives in New Hampshire and I'm like, you know, this might be right up my alley. Right. So I put my name in the hat for the commander's job and I had to interview with the superintendent up there at West Point and uh, he picked me. So I had to go to Lakota school, which is the UH 72 helicopter little tiny thing, you know, it does every, I call it the mighty Lakota. I said, it does everything you want, but just barely <laughs> <laughs> you know, after flying a Chinook. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, so I did three years up there at, at West Point and, um, I met my current wife there and, uh, the army decided at three years, they're like, you know what? You got to go back to the community. You can't stay there. That's too good a job. Yeah. Someone else has to get it. And I'm like, uh, they, they were trying to get, it was a series of 160th guys, right? And they were trying to get us out of there <laughs> but uh so i said well i'm not moving so um they were gonna send me to brag and i was like you know uh, how about i just retire and at that time that last year we were putting on an air show for orange county new york and the county executive had just got the show but it was supposed to happen in um, uh, coney island and that fell through so they only had 71 days to plan this whole air show at a whole different venue our airfield and uh the general told me, he was a three-star general, he's like, uh, Al, help him out any way you can. Okay. So I helped the county executive out with whatever he needed, you know, terrain for press conferences. You know, we brought the C-17s over and C-130s and the, the mighty Lakota was out there with them. And uh, we made it happen. And um, it was amazing. And when the county executive found out that I was retiring, he said, well, I don't have a helicopter, but uh, I got a job for you. And it's a, so I'm a deputy commissioner of emergency services. I run the division of emergency management. So it's really like being in JSOC, you know, you're dealing with fire, police, EMS, you know, uh, Red Cross, all that kind of stuff. So they all hate each other. 
mm-hmm. until something happens. <laughs> yep. Right. And then they work together and they go back to hating each other again. It's just yeah. like Jay saw. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that. And I get to run it. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, any... Any issues or challenges, you know, with, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress or anything from any of the events that you went through? Because, I mean, you experienced a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think I do. You know, I mean, there's nothing I would say, oh, I definitely have PTSD, but I do. You know, I mean, there's times where I get into situations where I don't know what to do. Like one time I was in New York City in the wrong part of town um, in a subway station and I was afraid to pull my phone out because everybody's going to look at me like, you don't belong here, you know? And it's like, crap. And I just started feeling, you know, super anxious and I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. Because if I got on the wrong train, I was going to end up in a worse place. Yeah. And, you know, the uptown, downtown, it's it's confusing. Luckily, I got on the right train and, and that was that. But that's just a good example of when I encounter something that I am not trained for. Yeah. You know, because the one thing about the 160th is they really trained us well, you know, and all the yeah, stress inoculation you get from Sears School and all that stuff, it, it all falls into place if as long as you kind of know what it is. And so I do run into that, and I recognize it when it does happen. I say, like, oh, geez, yeah, you get a little panic attack there. But that seems to be about the extent for me. Yeah. You know? Were you the senior guy then at the point of which you departed in 160th? Uh, well, I was the senior. Meaning pilot. longevity. No. It, no. no there Ooh. were guys. Uh, there was a couple of Little Bird guys, uh, Carl Meyer, Billy Cook, who, legends. I mean, these guys, you know, Carl is the guy in Black Hawk Down that's shooting his MP5 out the side while the other guy gets the crash crew member. You know, it's like inches between the rotor blade and the, and the buildings. And, you know, those guys, you know, by the time they retired... <laughs> I don't remember how old they were, but, you know, the joke was they had to use a walker to get to the aircraft. And, you know, Billy had been shot, you know, a couple of times. He got shot in the seatbelt, like the buckle in his seatbelt. Yeah. For the AK round. And, uh, yeah. You know, in Vietnam, uh, we had Larry Freeland on the show who was a uh, pilot, and he wrote a book, um, Chariots in the Sky. And, and uh, in the book, it describes a lot about the plate. And then the, they used another plate that they sat on and everything in Vietnam and those types of things, especially for Huey. It wasn't so much for right. Chinook. But um, curious, did you guys modify the seats or do anything in any particular no, way? Well, we had uh, armored seats, mm. right? So the, the, the seat pan in the back are armored, right, with Kevlar. And then you wore a level three chest plate. Right. It was soft armor, right? And soft armor will stop spall and maybe pistol around if you're lucky. But the the chest plate is too small on most people, right? I mean, and so what would be interesting is I'd go, let's say a hot exfil or a Kazovac, right? And we're getting shot at. You can hear bullets hitting the aircraft, you know, ding, 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 the the ding. Yeah, like a little popcorn, <laughs> and, yeah. And I used to sit with my arms as close, my elbows along my sides, hoping that if I got shot from the side, that my arm bones would stop the bullet from rattling around in my chest. And the first time someone said, why are you sitting like that? Well, if I get shot from the side, because <laughs> there's nothing to, in the window, you know? I mean, now they've got some some clear armor there that's pretty good. Yeah. But we would, because of the elevations and the weight problem, we would drop the armor every chance we got. And it wasn't until General Brown, who I think was the SOCOM commander at the time, says, you will wear your armor. You know, we're like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you always hate when those kind of orders come down, but yet yeah. the same token, 
it probably saved your life at some point uh, as well by having to do that. Well, for me, not uh, while I was still in the 160th, not a single piece of armor had ever been hit. Wow. Other, other than uh, Roberts Ridge. So up until that point, we would we would say, no one's ever even hit the armor. Why we got, why we got it? You know. And then you talk to you know the guys, uh, Greg Calvert, who was the right seater of Razor Zero One, um, got shot. I don't know four or five times right where his heart is. You know, and the armor stopped it, and he got shot in the hand. That was a whole different thing. But but the armor stopped that. And then Chuck, his co-pilot, or actually the pilot in command, uh, he's got holes in in the, the the folds of his uniform, leading right up to his groin. <laughs> He's like, it was headed right for home. <laughs> well, I don't know where it went. <laughs> so oh, my god! So he got shot in the femur, but he didn't get his, get his junk. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So wow. We, it was just funny. We would, uh, one time a group of SEALs came in, the Dev Group guys, and we had to move them out, and a, uh, a sandstorm was happening, right? And it was going to get worse. So we knew we were going to have to use the train falling radar, and they could only weigh so much, or we could only weigh so much. So they... They get on the aircraft, we pick up to a hover, we check the power setting. It's like, we're too heavy. We land, we throw gear off, you know, bullets or whatever, you know. Nope, time to get the armor. And you start throwing the armor out the side, pick it up until we're light enough to for the performance to use the radar. And we just blast off into the sandstorm. Mm. Wow. So that was all stuff that, you know, over time, you know, we learned we could do, you know, initially it might have taken a lot more planning and then you, you memorize the area. You know that, oh, there's a hill around this corner here. We're going to have to worry about that, you know. Hug the right side, and the radar won't see it until the last second. We'll climb over it, you know, kind of thing. Man, man, man. You guys uh, are amazing. Um, I mean, anybody that's ever had a chance to work with 160th, Lodge 160th, obviously, uh, in the soft community, Um and, uh, I mean, to have you come on the show and, and share all this, man, I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks for uh, asking me to come down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's a whole lot left that we haven't uncovered yet, yeah. though. Oh, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> you know, but you read my book, you know, yeah. Razor, yeah. Razor Zero Three, A Night Stalker's Wars. Yes. It covers a lot of the stuff we didn't touch where, on. And where, where can people find it? Amazon? Yeah, you can get you right now. It's a pre-order. Yeah. Right? It okay. comes out, like, mid-September in the stores. But Barnes & Noble... Um, yeah, Amazon for sure. Uh, if you happen to be in Australia or New Zealand, you can buy it there. Okay. <laughs> or UK. It's uh, already out there. Well, it's on, just in pre-order. Okay. okay. So they, there was a paper shortage, a worldwide paper shortage for publishing. Had no idea. Yeah, I didn't either. But it was supposed to come out in July. And it just so happened it coincided with the Pentagon security review for the book. Yeah. Because they're supposed to take 60 days. They took nine Nine months, almost ten, and uh, so I was sweating that. You didn't have connections there, just saying. Do you know who I, you're talking to? This is Alan Mack, <laughs> right? I did, but those people, when they went and checked on it for me, I think pissed off the guy that was. Doing it. <laughs> so they had juice, but just not enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. I said, yeah, I know it's Alan Mack, and because you bothered me, yeah. I don't know that that happened, but I think it did. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so in. Um, the book comes out in September, you Mid, said? Mid-September, yeah. Okay. And um, you've got an Instagram. We were talking offline. You've got an Instagram page, but you're getting ready to put that out public. It's right now right. Uh, private yeah. and everything. And that's alan.c, isn't it? I have to look at the Instagram one. I've got Twitter. I just yeah. adjusted it to Alan C. Mac 2015 at Twitter. 
And I have a Facebook author site. Uh, once again, Alan C. Mack, author. And so I'm starting to post on that quite a bit. I'm going to have to look and see. Um, I want to make sure that it, uh, I've got the right one because, yeah, with Inst- a lot of people follow us, I know, on Instagram. Um, and if you're not following us, go over to Mentors, the number four MIL over there. But I want to say that it's, um, yep, there it is, Alan Mac 2015. So okay. that's uh, that's how you can find Alan C. Mac 2015. I'm sorry. And uh, you, if you it, that way, if you go ahead and you request it because it's a private account, when you do flip it over to public uh, account uh, and you decide to change the name or do anything like that, then people will be able to to keep up with you there. Are you out on Facebook with a, a, a author page or yep. anything? Yep, Alan C. Mac uh, author. Okay. Yeah, and Excellent. that's where we're starting. You know, I can adjust that one pretty easy, obviously. And I have a website, you know, alancmac.com. That's uh it's a nice website, actually. Yeah, no, it's a great I website. Have some, I have some friends that are authors, uh, Jim DeFelice, who wrote uh, American Sniper, and uh, Stephen Hartov wrote In the Company of Heroes with Mike Durant, and uh, they both saw it, and they're like, well, oh, i got to update my website. Yeah. <laughs> did you do it yourself? Or did no, you? I hired somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't ask for the guy's name? The, a guy named Gary Williams did. He wrote a book on Michael Murphy. And he said the same things. Yeah, I got to update my. Who did your website? <laughs> yeah, actually, I looked at your website and thought the same thing. By yeah. the way, um, ours is kind of plain Jane and stuff. And it's amazing though how many websites actually get hit with different types of. You know, they're trying to attack it and penetrate and everything. And it's not, mm-hmm. I don't have anything on there for yeah, you guys. Like you know, it, it's pictures and stories, and right? Point, and, yeah. and I'm like, what? What the hell are you doing and stuff? And so I end up having so many problems with that website. Um, that uh, I, I made it as simple as possible. I don't get nearly what I used to get before, but because it's so plain Jane, it's not nearly as attractive as it should be as well. Yeah. But uh, yours is really nice. I will agree. Yeah, very, very high professional level. Yeah, the lady, sure. the lady that did it, uh, we gave her a couple of examples of websites that I liked. I was like, I want it to do this and this. And we're about to add on there, I think, uh, a link to actually buy the book because... What we haven't figured out completely is how to do a signed copy if you're not with me. Like if somebody sure. buys a book and says, hey, I want, I want it signed, you know, there's different ways to get the book to me or buy it and get it signed and back and all that stuff. So. Yeah, most definitely. So that'll be really nice when you get that thing yeah. hooked up and get it on your website so people then don't have to go all over the place to try to find it. They just go right, hit your website, mm-hmm. you'll yeah. be able to manage the traffic, all that kind of good yeah. stuff as well, a little bit yeah. better. Um, Alan, I appreciate you coming on the show like we talked about and uh, sharing your story. And we may reserve the right to call you back um, in the future (laughs) um, so we can sit down and talk more about the aftermath of the book and some of the things that are within that that uh, maybe right now you're not wanting to really share and dangle, but just enough to get the people to listen and tune in and buy it. But at that point, uh, maybe we'll get a little bit deeper into the book and and uh, talk about some specific scenery or something in there. That um, Any talk of a movie or anything? No, not this okay. stage of the game. Mm-hmm. Although uh, a friend of mine in Tampa uh, was a producer out in Hollywood, and he's moved over to Tampa. He's doing radio now, and he's like, "Hey, you know, um, this would probably be a good movie." I said, uh, "Maybe, maybe an Amazon thing. You know, might be easier to do." And he's like, "Oh, we could do that." Who's going to play Alan? I don't know. You know, by the time it, it happens, you know. Uh, Tom knows? Cruise? No. He's too old. <laughs> I was thinking, like, you know, Chris Pratt. Yeah. Chris Pratt. <laughs> there you go. He's got to be a good-looking guy, yeah, right? Because he's out there doing uh, Terminal List right now. Oh, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild. 
Yeah. But he's getting old too already. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, you got to have somebody play the young Alan and then the old Alan. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, Alan, again, thanks so much yeah. for coming on. Yeah. I appreciate thanks it. Again. I had a blast, man. Thanks. Yeah. Okay.